Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. say that he's still going to get what we thought he was going to get. We're talking like five to six to seven hundred million dollars. It's it's just impossible to think that anymore with a guy that, again, we don't know if he's going to have a second Tommy John, but getting two Tommy Johns just changes everything. So just devastating. I mean, really sad for him more specifically. And then after that for baseball, because it was going to be, and it still will be the number one topic this off season, but it, it, unfortunately it's not going to be the same type of story, which, which sad, it's sad. That was Greg Amsinger on the morning show today, alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Some disappointing news yesterday for the game of baseball, for anybody that enjoys sports, frankly, Shohei Otani torn UCL. He's not going to pitch the remainder of the season. It remains to be seen whether or not he's going to play the remainder of this season. And T-Bone, this has an impact on the Cardinals, not because I thought they were going to go out there and sign Shohei Otani. Nobody was projecting that. Nobody. Maybe now. But Shohei Otani was the top of the market. It was tier one Shohei. Tier two is where you start the real conversation about anybody else. And there were going to be teams that said, you know what? We're in the Shohei Otani sweepstakes. And we can't do anything else until Shohei decides where he's going to go. And I thought that presented a potential opportunity for the Cardinals. Because those teams, maybe it's the Mets, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Mariners, they're going after Shohei. Meanwhile, look over here. That's the Cardinals market. Aaron Nola, Blake Snell, Sonny Gray, Yamamoto. These guys are all available and they're saying, hey, what about me? I'm a pretty damn good pitcher too. And these teams are all saying, yeah, 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 we like you, but look at Shohei. Like, come on. You can't blame us, right? That guy's amazing. And the Cardinals could say, well, we love you more than anybody loves you because the Cardinals weren't going to be in the Shohei sweepstakes. So they could go to that secondary pitching market that included Nola and Snell and the better arms on the market, not named Shohei and make them feel loved immediately upon their arrival of hitting on the free agency market. Now, if you're a team going to the market that needs a pitcher and you were interested in Shohei because he can pitch for you, well, that's gone. Ken Rosenthal had a piece earlier today over on The Athletic about how this is going to impact Shohei's free agency. And he basically said, hey, is it going to impact it? Yeah, he's probably going to have to get creative with the next contract. Maybe there's opt-outs that are involved. Maybe there's performance incentives that are involved. But he's still going to be worth $500 million. But he also added whoever signs him is signing him for his bat exclusively. You take anything that you get from Shohei Otani as a pitcher as a bonus. That is added value to whatever he gives you as a hitter. So when you go to the market this offseason and you see these other teams that are maybe looking at Shohei, they're also going to be simultaneously looking at the starting pitching market. T-Bone, I think this could impact the Cardinals, and it's not a positive for anybody involved. Yeah, I'm with you 100% because when we've done the look at the starting pitching market on our show for the last month or so, we've been using the list Jim Bowden came out with, and it was, hey, 
Here's the first year. That's Shohei Otani. Here's the second year. This is where the Cardinals began the shopping <laughs> list. And it was Snell, Nola, uh, and Urias. Those were, I think, the three in that second, quote-unquote, second tier. Well, that first tier has now disappeared. They're it. The first tier is now what the second tier previously was. And to your point, yeah, now all these teams are going to go shopping into that bin probably that need pitching. The Dodgers are now going to be interested in a Blake Snell. The Mets maybe are going to be interested. Maybe they just re-sign Urias, right? Yeah, maybe they do go after Julio Urias and try and just lock him up. So the offseason, and look, it was going to be a complicated one for the Cardinals. It just got more complicated because of the Shohei Otani injury. And it is not a good thing for St. Louis because we know they don't like the bidding wars. And I thought... Sure, there was going to be a bidding war for these guys, but I thought maybe they could try and jump the market before the big market teams really get involved. And I still don't know how involved the Mets will be at the top tier, but the Dodgers were definitely going to be there. Yeah, I would never rule out San Diego from trying to lock up anybody, including Blake Snell, who they've got in the rotation now. Everything just got more complicated because now everybody's going to start to circle around that second tier and not be waiting around in either. And that's the most important part of this now. That's the thing that sucks for the Cardinals is now you have a bidding war that will start immediately upon the arrival of the free agency market for any of these guys that you're interested in. Aaron Nola now has more suitors that are going to be at the table early. Blake Snell, more suitors that are going to be at the table early. And I think that's really the market that gets impacted by this maybe the most. If you're looking at the the type of pitcher that Shohei Otani brings to the table, the guy that most closely resembles, nobody is Shohei. I, I understand that. But the guy that most closely resembles Shohei on the market is probably Blake Snell. He doesn't go super deep into games. He is a bit erratic, but the stuff is there. And he can strike out the world when he's on top of his game. And that's really who Shohei Otani is. That's the opposite of what Aaron Nola is. Aaron Nola is an innings eater. He's a classic. He's going to lead the front of your rotation. He's going to give you 200 innings every year. And you look up at the end of the day and he's like a sub four ERA. You really love having him in your rotation, but you appreciate him more when you're watching him every fifth day than if you just watch one outing. Blake Snell is wow stuff. Shohei is wow type of stuff. I went to his start against the Cardinals earlier this season and he set a new career high in strikeouts. He looked unhittable. When you watch it, you're just like, I don't understand how anybody gets a hit off of this guy ever. So, I think the market that gets impacted the most is probably Blake Snell. And I'm not totally sure that that was the market that the Cardinals were going to be in. So hopefully they can just turn their attention almost fully now to Aaron Nola, who's my top of the market guy that I would be most interested in. And that's the way that they're able to quote unquote pivot from this news. But if we just look at it for baseball at large and get away from the Cardinals for a second and look at what this means for Shohei, man, this sucks. Like, there's no other way to put it. It's brutal for the sport. It sucks for the Angels because they tried to go for it. And whether you think that that was a stupid plan or not, I liked it because I liked them going for it while they have this generational player. Such a stupid plan. It does suck for them that they went for it. They tried to bet on the two generational pieces and Mike Trout and Shohei. And now for the last month of the season, it's possible neither of them plays. Mm. Mike Trout also ended up back on the injured list at the end of last night. And now Shohei is not going to be pitching for them, at least for the remainder of this season. So that's brutal. And for baseball, now we're not going to see the best two-way player in the history of the sport next year. Yeah. He might hit, but he ain't a two-way player next year. Yeah. And I'm fascinated to know, just speaking on Shohei Otani, is I'm fascinated to know what the approach is going to be for teams when it comes to not just the contract structure, but I wonder if some teams are going to look at him and say, hey, man, it, just give up the pitching. You're bad. You're bad is the thing that we really want. Because when you look at him this year before this injury, he's had to leave a multiple multitude of starts, whether yep. it be 
uh, blister, nail, arm fatigue, cramps. Like he's left a multitude of starts this year before this one injury. And I wonder if some teams, I, I think like when you're the Dodgers, you can just go in and do whatever you want. But I think there will be some teams, Seattle, a team that I think was going to be really targeting him. that may say, hey, let's. We don't need the arm. Look at our rotation. Our rotation's great. You can win here. Come here and just be a bat. That's what we need. We need the middle of the order impact bat. And maybe you do decide to say, okay, maybe after two, three years we try it again. But that's what I'm most fascinated about is our team's going to try and convince him to give up pitching, which I hope not because he's great when he's right. But this is the second time he's on surgery in five years and a guy that's been dealing with a lot of arm issues recently. Or not arm issues, but dealing with quote-unquote injuries recently. I'm fascinated to know what teams do and approach him when it comes to not just contract structure, but if they try to get him to leave the mound. And this is why people used to say a couple of years ago when we first saw the Shohei Otani experience, they were like, hey, why don't why don't we see more of this? Are there going to be more Shohei Otanis out there? Why don't the Cardinals do this with Mason Wynn? Exactly. And the answer is what we're watching right now. There's going to be a question next year of what do you do with Shohei? Do you... Put him on the injured list, let him go down and get some rehab starts late in the season as he's trying to get himself right as a pitcher. The answer is probably no. What about the following year? If he's 18 months post-surgery and now he's like back to 100% as a thrower of the baseball, what do you do then? Do you, do you let him ramp up? Do you give him an every fifth day situation? Do you make him a reliever at that point? Can, can he be a reliever while also being an outfielder slash DH for you? Like, how does this all work into his plans? It's really complicated, man. Even with Shohei, when he was healthy, the Angels do a six-man rotation to be able to best suit him. There are certain things in terms of how he prepares for games that's a little different than everybody else. You do have to have that DH available for him. Obviously, everybody signs up for this because it's Shohei Bleep and Otani. But what about when it's a guy that's a slightly above league average hitter and a slightly above league average pitcher? You don't do all of that stuff for that player. That's why it's so hard to develop somebody both as a pitcher and as a position player. So will there be others that do it? There might be, but you have to be a truly unique talent, the likes of which rarely enter the major leagues. You've got to be the caliber of a first-round pitcher and a first-round hitter to be able to make your case as to why you should be able to do both while you're in the minor leagues developing for another team. I honestly think it would require somebody to go to college first and do it there. I I don't know that there are any teams that would invest in that in the minor leagues because of how difficult it is to be able to develop that way. Yeah, even there, like, we see some guys that kind of do it. I can't remember his name, but I think Florida had a guy that was a pitcher and a first baseman. And now that I think he's been drafted, I think he's going to go to first. Like, it is so hard to do it because of what you said. I don't think you, I don't even think it is, are you a first-round batter or a first-round pitcher? You have to be, like, a top-five pitcher and a top-five bat to do it. Yeah. Because if you are slightly behind in one spot... Major League Baseball teams aren't going to wait around. I mean, look at the kids that just got drafted. Cruz, for example, already in double-A as a bat. The pitcher um, from LSU had drawn a blank on his name all of a sudden. Skeens? Yeah, the Pirates' first-round pick. Already a high-A, could be potentially a double-A next year. He's at double-A now, wasn't he? Yeah, double-A, yes, thank you. He got promoted uh, just the other day, too. You wouldn't be able to do that if you were both. Because you may be as an arm as electric as, as, as skews, or maybe you've got a bat as Cruz, but if you are lacking behind, you have to wait around. The hope for those teams is that those guys, Cruz, skews, are up in two years. 
you couldn't do that with a guy that's a two-way player. You'd have to be truly top five at both out of that draft class to do that. Brutal news for Major League Baseball yesterday. We're not going to be able to see Shohei Otani pitch next year. Whoever his new team is, we'll be signing him as a bat and then hoping that later on down the road, he becomes a pitcher. That's Tanner Hendrickson. He's Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kiley. You've got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. You guys can always get involved in the show on the Air Comfort Service text line at 314-399-9646. You can also watch us on YouTube at 101 ESPN STL. That's where you go to find the live stream. There's a chat that's going on throughout the day over there. If you guys want to get involved with that, feel free to do so. Again, that's on YouTube at 101 ESPN STL or just Google 101 ESPN STL. That'll pull up the YouTube page. Coming up next, Zach Thompson officially has my attention. How does his success alter, if at all, the Cardinals' plans this offseason? We'll discuss it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Straw came out right down Clark Street. Bookend strikeouts for Zach Thompson. The heater freezes Joe and Zach maintains a 3-0 lead. Ready for his 83rd pitch. And he got Reynolds to chase it. And Thompson has strikeout number five. Back to the mound, and Zach spears it. And he'll throw the wet baseball to first, and that will retire the side. Thompson showing some moxie in this game. He gives up a homer, and that's it. It's official 5-2 St. Louis. That's what it sounded like last night or yesterday, really, afternoon game on Bally Sports Midwest. Zach Thompson, another impressive outing for that young man. In his last four appearances for the Cardinals, this is three starts and then a long extended relief outing for him as well. T-Bone, he's gone 18 innings, has allowed 18 hits in those innings, allowed six earned runs, and maybe most importantly, he has a 23-3 to strikeout to walk ratio. That's good for a 3-0 ERA and opposing hitters are batting just 260 against him, getting on base 29% of the time. This has been a really impressive stretch. By Zach Thompson. There's no other way to put it. If you're looking at any of the young starters that are auditioning right now for the Cardinals, it's very clear who's been the best of them. It's Zach Thompson. Zach Thompson's number one, and then we can argue and discuss whoever we think is two through four, but Thompson is the clear-cut number one. I got on Alex after the first appearance that he had and said, this is ridiculous. I can't believe you're even bringing up the notion of Zach Thompson as a starter. Alex, just look at the minor league statistics. They'll tell you everything you need to know. The guy had a 9 ERA down in AAA. Your anger forced Alex to take a vacation. I get it. It was fair. He got very upset with me. I thought I had a justifiable stance there. (laughs) I still think I did. I didn't realize, and this is on me and a lesson learned, honestly, I didn't realize how different the game is right now at the AAA level compared to the majors. The strike zone down there being as small as it is, being smaller because of the automatic ball strike zone, I, I think had a bigger effect on Zach Thompson than it than I caught, put a could have possibly expected. The guy had a nine ERA and he was walking an inning per batter while he was in the minors. Now he comes up to the big leagues and in four appearances and 18 innings, he's walked three batters. This is the type of pitcher that you can dream on, man. This is not some random Memphis creation where it's like a Connor Thomas or something like that where you're like, hey, man, 
maybe if you squint, you can kind of see how he could fit into their plans. This is not a Palacios of the rotation where you say to yourself, oh, you got him off of waivers. Maybe he could be something for Zach Thompson was a first round draft pick, man. They thought he was going to be a significant piece of their future. Injuries derailed things. It became, hey, maybe he's a reliever. Maybe he's a starter. We're not totally sure. Up and down, up and down. Well, now I'm starting to believe. Now I'm starting to sway my decision on or my belief on what he can be for the Cardinals. This might be a guy that you can put into the rotation next year. T-Bone, what are you seeing out of Zach Thompson right now? Yeah, I think he could be a guy that could be put into the rotation. I, I think right now he's leapfrog Libertor on the depth chart and Hudson on the depth chart, just based on what he's looked like. And I was skeptical when they decided to do this and called him up just like you because of what you said, that 90 RA, all the walks. And again, I didn't realize about the strike zone in AAA either, but I did see one thing that was encouraging after his first start here, and it was that cutter it's labeled on a baseball spot it is a slider that was a pitch for me that i said hey you know if that thing's real that might be the thing that can make him a starter because you can't you can't survive on two pitches fastball and curveball not going to survive as a starter at the big leagues with just two but now he's starting to use that slider more and he used it more than his curveball yesterday at 28 percent usage rate and he got some whiffs on it again yesterday and the reason that i think he can be a starter is because of that pitch potentially because now he's got the forcing which he can attack up in the zone he's got the curveball that can drop in the zone and now he's got something that's going to move horizontally with the slider and he's done a great job so I've, i'm looking at his baseball savant page right now most of where the sliders are is they're out of the strike zone and they're in on the lower quadrant against righties that's exactly where you want to put that pitch that's in on the hands that's close enough to be in a strike that you're going to get guys to chase after it or you're going to get a couple of calls with it so I think that pitch by itself is what's leading to his effectiveness and why I think he can be a guy that can be considered as okay he's our number six starter potentially going into next year maybe he's our swing guy that we put in the bullpen that stretched out that if we need him to can go into the rotation and start for us I think he's leapfrog Libertor and he's leapfrog Hudson to take that role going into next year. But again, he's going to have to finish strong. I don't want to like put him in pen as that guy right now, but he's got to finish strong. And if he continues to pitch this way, he's that guy for me. So he's that way for me as well. He also makes me wonder about what the offseason plan is going to be. And the reason why I say this is not because anybody that's texting it right now, don't, don't even send the text. I'm not saying they only get two instead of the three starters. They should still get the three. I think it opens up what that third starter could be, though. Instead of going out there and getting, let's call it Aaron Nola at the top of the market, and then trading for whoever you think is the second best starter that they can go out there and acquire. Maybe it's a Jesus Luzardo, who I really like um, for the Marlins. I think that's a guy that they should target this offseason. That third pitcher, instead of going out and getting somebody that brings a lot of certainty to the rotation, getting a guy that is a floor-level pitcher. Maybe it's trade, maybe it's signing, doesn't much matter. Maybe you go out there and you bring somebody with upside who has a lot of question marks about them. Maybe that's health related. Maybe that's they weren't good last year and you're betting on the upside. Whatever it is. A guy like a Herman Marquez, who has a club options for $16 million this offseason. He barely pitched this year. I would guess that the Colorado Rockies are not going to be picking that up. That would be my assumption. He's been pretty good in his career in Colorado. What could he be outside of Colorado? Could he be for you what John Gray has been for the Texas Rangers? It's worth a consideration. What about Andrew Heaney? Speaking of the Texas Rangers, he's very rarely healthy. He has been for the most part this year. Is he a guy that's going to take another one-year contract? Is he going to be able to break the bank? I don't think so. I don't think anybody's going to bet on his, um, his ability. 
Maybe you could get him at two years and like 30 million bucks. Do you bet on that? What about a guy like Kinta Maeda, who's never healthy, but when he is, pretty good. Got some decent strikeout numbers in his career. The two, though, that immediately come to mind for me that fit into this criteria, T-Bone. Tyler Malley, who was recovering from a serious injury. I think he had Tommy John in, like, May. He's probably not going to pitch again until middle of next year. He has stole your heart. You were big on him last year. I was, because he's been a really good pitcher for the last three full seasons in Major League Baseball. Since the start of the 2020 season, he has about 20% above league average. He has a fielding independent pitching of 3.8. That's really good, man. That could be a number three starter for you. Another guy that comes to mind with this is Frankie Montes. He's been missing the entirety of this season with an elbow-shoulder issue. He's probably going to be back next year. I can't promise you he's going to be good. I can't promise you he's going to be healthy. But if you could sign him to a one-year deal worth $5 million bucks with incentives, could you do that now where you've got the upside of a potential number three starter in Frankie Montes because you have Zach Thompson? Does he open that up for you? Because you know, hey, worst-case scenario, we think Thompson could be a number five starter for us. Best case scenario, Montes or Malley are healthy. Those guys are immediately into our rotation. Now we signed a guy for way cheaper than we should have been able to because he was coming off of a serious injury. And we've got the upside baked in on Malley or Montes. And now we've got a competition between Mats and Thompson for that number five starter in our rotation. How would you feel about that type of a plan, T-Bone? Yeah, I, I don't mind it. I don't know if I like the one on Malley because he's not a guy that you even can consider as being healthy for opening day. He's probably a guy that comes in in like June, July is probably when he would be back. But I don't mind one if it is, hey, Frankie Montas is the guy I'm going to use as an example here. Montas comes back. He's healthy in the offseason. He's been throwing sign him to a deal, and if he doesn't work out and he gets hurt in spring training, then I don't mind because at least you've brought him in. I want the guy to be healthy coming into spring training at least to where you can at least see what he looks like and bank on that rather than saying, okay, we've got to get by until June or July whenever this guy gets back because he's recovering from something. I don't want a guy that's recovering from something. So, But I, I don't mind the idea. Those guys are cheaper, though. Those like that That is part of why I would go that route, or potentially. I, was at, I would at least consider it is because like if you're going out and getting a Paxton or a Heaney, you're probably going to have to give them multiple years, and you're probably going to have to give them $10-plus million. Yeah. Dollars. I, a Tyler Malley, Herman Marquez, Frankie Montes, I think there's a real chance you could get any of those guys on a one-year contract. Yeah, I, I should clarify. If the guy is like available to like throw in the offseason, like Marquez. Marquez is actually interesting because I was just looking at his numbers away from course. Yeah. I kind of like it. I might have my new number four. He's a very interesting player. Um, but if he's like healthy in the offseason and is throwing, then yeah, I'm okay to go get him on like a one-year deal and do what you're talking about where you bring in Thompson. The reason I'm questionable with Malley is like Malley is still like three to four months away once the season starts. And that, sure. I, that I don't want. I want a guy that at least can come into spring training. He's been throwing in the offseason. He seems to be healthy going into spring training, and you see how it goes. And then he's there in the rotation, hopefully by opening day. And the and Thompson serves as the, in case of emergency, plug him into the rotation. The reason I would consider it, and I want to see more from Thompson. I'm not there yet. Let's see what the rest of this season looks like. I want to see him every fifth day. He's He has my attention at a minimum right now. The reason I would consider is because it's possible Zach Thompson's just like a really good pitcher. And you come into opening day of next year, and regardless of what you do around him, he earns his path to this rotation. And if that's how you feel about Thompson at the end of the year, it's a big gap between where we were six weeks ago and where we are today on him. But if that's how you feel about it, 
well, then I don't need to fill that spot in my rotation right away. I can have a guy like a Mali or a Montes, maybe a Herman Marquez, whoever you deem that player to be. And even if you think they're going to have to miss the first six weeks of next year, well, I can get by at that point for the first six weeks with a rotation that includes, let's call it Nola, um, Imanaga, the pitcher that they could potentially get from Japan, Michaelis, Mats, and Thompson. That's a five that you can totally go out there with for the first six weeks of the season. And now I've got some baked in upside of whoever that pitcher is that they've signed to be the quote-unquote sixth starter that can be inserted into the mix halfway through the season. And that provides help for injury. It provides upside for the rotation. And now the first six weeks of the season, I see what I've got. This is an open audition for you guys to earn your spot in the rotation long-term while this guy is coming back from his injury on his rehab stint potentially. So I could see where that comes in. It requires another solid six weeks out of Zach Thompson. That is the starting point for me. But if he's able to do that, I think it opens up some very intriguing possibilities for the Cardinals going into the offseason that before we saw this from Thompson, I was not willing to even entertain because I didn't think that you had five guys you could trust on opening day. Thompson could be that fifth one that you do trust. Yeah, and and if he is the guy that you trust and you go that route, I mean, the best case scenario in that scenario that you just laid out is then if Thompson continues to pitch well as the five and when Montas or Malley come back healthy, you just go to a six-man rotation. I mean, look at Toronto. Toronto's just, I think they just moved away from this where they had all their pitchers come back healthy and Alec Manoa was pitching well. So what did they do? They said, we're not going to send, we're not going to send down Manoa. He's pitching well. Let's just go to the six-man rotation. It's extra rest. And when somebody struggles, then we make a change. And then they eventually optioned Manoa back down to, I think, AAA, if I'm not mistaken. So they were running a six-man rotation for just a small stretch because everybody was pitching well. That's the best case scenario in that, in that scenario that you laid out. And then if Tom and goes through some struggles or somebody gets hurt all the guys are still here or if or if Thompson struggles you just send him back down to triple or push him to the bullpen like it provides some sort of it it provides a balance and it provides some insurance for some of the guys that you are concerned about going into next year because you don't know what Steven Matz is going to be he's a ticking time bomb it seems like since he's signed that contract here in St. Louis it's possible he's just a good pitcher next year it's possible he starts 10 games for you next year there is some upside potentially with some of these pitchers that are hitting the market. I I don't think that if you ask Texas Rangers fans, they were super excited about Andrew Heaney going into this season. There was very little reason to be, but now he's a pretty significant piece of that rotation. If not for him, I, I don't know where that team would have been early on in the season. So the Zach Thompson stuff is intrig- intriguing and his ability to pitch this way could open up opportunities for the Cardinals in the offseason that I wouldn't have even entertained six weeks ago. And six weeks from now, they might be the best-case scenario for the Cardinals on the free agent market. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But next, how much intrigue does college football have for you because of the returning quarterbacks that exist going into the season? I think me and T-Bone have differing opinions on this. We'll get to it next year on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right. 
back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So how much does your intrigue for college football change year to year based on the returning quarterback talent alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis? I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll get to questions and answers in about 10 minutes or so T-Bone last year. It was hard for me to even feign my um, excitement about the college football season. It, it just didn't really exist for me. And the reason why is because we had a pretty good idea of who the best teams were going to be. And we knew barring something unforeseen, it was going to be those teams playing in the college football playoff. Part of that was because there wasn't a lot of talent at quarterback outside of those places. Bryce Young was the best quarterback in the country, and oh, by the way, he played for one of the best programs in the country. You look around right now, T-Bone, and among the top 10 passers last year, six of them are returning. Now, only five of them are returning to the same team, but five of the top 10 players last year in terms of passing yardage in Power 5 teams are returning to their team this year. That includes Michael Penix Jr., who was amazing last year at Washington, Caleb Williams, who's currently the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy, Drake May, the quarterback at North Carolina, who might go number two. Some have him actually at number one in next year's NFL draft. Sam Hartman has transferred. He's now at Notre Dame, but I think that makes Notre Dame that much more intriguing as one of the top storylines in college football this year. We'll see them in week zero coming up in a couple of days. And then Bo Nix who I thought was, I had completely written him off as a college football quarterback at Auburn. Then he goes to Oregon and looks like one of the best players in the country last year. So for me, my excitement level for college football has increased tenfold compared to where it was this time last year because there's returning quarterback talent all across the country. And it's at programs that aren't necessarily like the best in college football but it's like the second tier programs where they've now got a shot because of who's playing quarterback for them. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but I I'm kind of like same as I was last year going into huh. the college football season. I'm not as excited as you are with the returning quarterbacks. And I think part of that is still some skepticism on some of the guys that you name, like Bo Nix, for example, because I saw what happened at Auburn and then we'll watch last year at Oregon was like, okay, was that, Really him, or was this just a one-off? Kind of kind of the same feeling I had around Spencer Rattler, who had a pretty good year last year at uh, Arkansas, right? Yeah, yep. Arkansas. Well, um, South Carolina. Rattler? Yeah, sorry, South Carolina. I knew it was one of those teams that— K.J. Jefferson's down at uh, thank Arkansas. You. Um, but anyways, those are the kind of quarterbacks. And same with Penix. I don't know why, but I, I overlook Penix all the t- time. I just never feel like he's a top end quarterback. Like I like Penix. I don't view him as a future stud in the NFL. I don't either. I don't think anybody does. And, and maybe that's part of the reason why I'm not as excited because I see all these quarterbacks, Bo Nix, Michael Penix, outside of Caleb Williams, who was gonna be a stud probably at the NFL level. I look at them and go, Yeah, okay, they're good in college, but like they're not gonna translate to the NFL. See, and I don't me, care about that. Really? I, I actually prefer it sometimes. I oh. like Chase Daniel. When I watched him at Mizzou, I didn't watch him and say to myself, Oh, this guy's gonna be a stud in the NFL. Juice Williams, did you watch Juice and say to yourself, hey, I'm watching the next Tom Brady at the NFL level? The answer is no, but sometimes that's what makes college football great. It's what I enjoy about watching that level is, hey, man, you get different systems. You get different styles. Every Saturday you go into it, and at 11 a.m., you might watch a slugfest. 
between a team that wins with defense and a triple option style uh, offense and a team that's running like this spread offense that completely alters the way that the game is played like that in the NFL, everything kind of is the same for the most part. Teams will have different variations off of it. But for the most part, you're an 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end. And you throw the football all over the yard, right? You've got the outside zone, the inside zone, the gap schemes. Like, there's only a few different ways that the the sausage is made in the NFL. In college, there is a wide variety between what the styles of these these teams. And I think going into this year, man, I look at the names of the quarterbacks. If you're a college football fan, it's been a minute since we've seen this many high-level college football quarterbacks that have returning production from the previous season. Caleb Williams, Jaden Daniels, Jordan Travis, Quinn Ewers, Michael Penix Jr., J.J. McCarthy, Bo Nix, Drake May, Sam Hartman. That's 10 guys that I just listed that are at or near the top of the list in terms of the Heisman Trophy candidate list. And I didn't even get to Dylan Gabriel, Spencer Rattler, guys that are also expected to have big time years for their KJ Jefferson, who could be really good for their teams this year. I didn't mention Brady Cook either. You know, he's going to have a good year as well for Mizzou. Wow. I mean, they may win eight games if we're talking to him in the Heisman. Somebody said Jalen Daniels for Kansas. Absolutely. Yeah. Illinois is going to have to deal with him <laughs> yep. early in the I'm year. I'm <laughs> worried about that. Um, I So maybe this is where I come then, I guess, because I, I feel like I always kind of have the same kind of appetite for college football. Look, I'm excited to start watching college football. It's not like I'm not going to be locked in every Saturday. But one, I enjoy the NFL football more than I do college. Uh, and maybe that's part of the reason for this. But two, also most of those quarterbacks that you kind of that we've talked about here, Michael Penix, Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, they play out west. And maybe that's part of it too for my excitement. You know, it's not like Bryce Young, who I knew every day was going to be playing at like six o'clock for Alabama, or he was going to have an afternoon game. There's a chance, like Bo, like don't get me wrong, Bo Nix, Michael Penix, these guys are going to have some games that are in like that six o'clock, four o'clock window. But if they're playing out west and they're playing a game at like nine o'clock at night, that's not going to be over till midnight. I'm not as locked in on that. Oh yes, you are. You just I'm, wait. You just I'm wait. Not, You'll though. be locked I, in this that's year. That's the thing. Like I, I kind of pay attention, but by like nine o'clock, I start to go. Okay, I've seen all the college football. I kind of want to watch. I'll look at the box score later on in the morning, and I'm going to watch something else at this point. And I think maybe that's part of the reason we're like. Most of these quarterbacks that we're talking about, I also just hate watching USC football in general. Um, no defense whatsoever, and it annoys the hell out of me. Maybe that's why I'm not as ap- that excited about it as you are going yeah, into this like year. you still like college football. That's okay. And that's not the case. Three one four is better. Three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. If you had to bet on somebody to win the Heisman this year, are you just going with the chalk? Or are you going with Caleb Williams? He's at five to one right now to win the uh, to win the Heisman Trophy this year. Probably. I, I think I would. In that system w- with uh, Lincoln Riley, I can't see how anybody's not going to beat him for the Heisman Trophy. It's a fair one. Keep, keep an eye on Marvin Harrison Jr. He's 30-1 to 1 to win the Heisman this year. It takes so much for a wide receiver to win it. That's what I was just about we, to say. We saw the path. It was Devontae Smith a few years ago. What he did at Alabama was so otherworldly that he was able to find a way. Marvin Harrison Jr., I, I, saw, I was listening to an NFL draft podcast the other day. They said he's the best prospect that they've watched at the college level since like Julio Jones. He's that level of prospect right now. So if you were going to get a like totally crazy, this is probably not going to win. I'm throwing money away. Go over to the FanDuel Sportsbook at 30 to 1. Marvin Harrison Jr. is an interesting one. Um, If you're looking for something that is a little more likely to hit. 
hey man, Sam Hartman's the all-time leader in touchdown passes in the ACC. He's now at Notre Dame, which is a nationally prominent program. He's going to put up a bunch of yardage in that offense at 18 to one. That's somebody that is at least worth throwing a little bit, a and, little bit of money at. And I think their schedule's not that difficult this year. It's never difficult, man. Whoa, there are some years like I'm looking through here right now. I mean, they do have Ohio State, they do have USC. Okay, never mind. They've got Clemson too. <laughs> so they've got three top ten programs in the country on their schedule. Both yeah. of us just said it's never, never all that difficult. Yeah, they open with Navy. Maybe that's what I was thinking. I'll be curious to see what happens in that game. I'm uh, the line's for Navy. interesting. Line's interesting. I, I've got Navy plus the points, but them having Sam Hartman makes me a little bit nervous about that. Take Navy, take Navy on the money line. Don't do that. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. Questions and answers is coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. If you guys have any questions, get them in now. We'll get to them here over the next 10 minutes or so. Let's start with this from the 314. Guys, what are your realistic expectations for Justin Fields this season? Some fans, like myself, are considering him to be an MVP candidate. I think that might be a little overzealous. Uh, I think that Justin Fields, you should expect him to take a step forward this year. You need to see signs of him improving as a passer. And I think most importantly, you want to see him developing some chemistry with DJ Moore. If you can find those things, you're all right. This is your one of that path. Last year was basically, sounds weird, but kind of like college football is week zero this season. Last year was year zero for Justin Fields and his development. Your offensive line sucked. Your wide receivers were terrible. The coaching system was finally starting to get implemented. This is the first year that you can build upon that. I still think the offensive line is really bad, and there's injuries that are depleting it again. So I'm a little worried about that, but otherwise, you finally have a real weapon for him. I think he's going to start showing some more signs as a passer. That's what you want to see this year. MVP, no, I would not expect that. Yeah, you showed yourself as a Bears fan there, Texter. <laughs> um, but I, I'm i with you. I, do I think he takes the next step? Yes, but you're right. He's going to have to show more as a passer. And look, he showed he was able to throw for more yards last year. Completion percentage went up. QBR went up. His rating went up. So, like, you saw some some tangible signs of improvement. It is time, though, for that next step. And now that you've got some weapons, DJ Moore's in the in his wide receiver room now. You need to see him take that next step. This is the year that is that make-or-break year for Justin Fields. This is the year that the Bears answer, is he our franchise quarterback, or do we need to go start planning for somebody else? I think he is the franchise guy, and I think he'll show that this year. I think the Bears are a fringe playoff team this year because Justin Fields takes the next step. All right, sticking with the football theme from the 636. Guys, how do you think that the Chris Jones holdout ends? Is there another potential trade of a prominent player that is coming? I do not think they're going to trade him. I I think Chris Jones is being ridiculous with all of this stuff. Like, try to get all of the money that you can. Totally agree with that stance. No problem with it whatsoever. You got to know when to fold your hand, though. Buddy, your hand is not a winning one. So there was a new piece of information that came out yesterday on this T-Bone. If Chris Jones holds out till week eight, which he has the ability to do, first of all, he loses a million dollars in salary every single week that he holds out. Second of all, 
his franchise tag is then docked next season. So his franchise tag is based upon his 2023 salary. It's 120% of whatever his 2023 salary is. All of the games that he misses, that salary gets reduced by a million dollars. So instead of having a $30 million franchise tag next year, if he sits out eight weeks, it's $23 million for him. So if you're looking at this from his perspective, I am currently negotiating on that $30 million number because you as the Chiefs have to pay me that next year if you franchise tag me. If you wait until week eight, now I'm negotiating off of a $23 million franchise tag. So you're costing yourself leverage by the more that you sit out. He's not sitting out this year. I continue to have that stance. The Chiefs aren't trading him because they're trying to win a Super Bowl and doing so means that they get assets for next year, not this year. Nothing about this makes sense from his perspective. I understand wanting to get your money. You tried, you played your hand, you lost. Now it's time to report to camp and get yourself ready to go for the season. Ball out and earn the contracts next offseason when the Chiefs try to franchise tag you. So, no, I don't think he's going to miss time. And no, I don't think the Chiefs are trading him. Yeah, I don't think he's getting traded. I don't think he's missing time either because what you said, he's he should not be forfeiting that salary and then lowering his value in terms of what you just said with the franchise tag and what he would be looking at. I, I think he's going to report to camp either sometime this. I guess we're getting close to the end of the week, but before week one like i maybe he sits out week one but even then that doesn't make sense because what you just said i think he's gonna be back i think he's gonna be in the lineup for week one that's how i see this ending i can't see him being dealt and i don't see him sitting out missing time because of salary okay you'll like this sorry to cut you off i was just gonna say coming in today on the tv in the office they were talking about on espn they were having a segment of if chris jones does hold out until week eight are the chiefs in danger of missing the playoffs i thought that was a ridiculous segment to have but it just, you know, sparked in my mind when we were talking about this. Do we think they're going to lose twice to the Denver Broncos? Do we think they're going to lose to Chicago? Do we think they're going to lose to the Vikings? Like, come on, guys. They have Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Even if he misses eight weeks of the season, he's not going to. But if we do want to have that conversation, I just accept the premise. No, they're not going to miss the playoffs. I do think that, like, without Chris Jones, that defense is nowhere near as good as it's been previously. Chris Jones is amazing. The guy is inarguably the second best defensive tackle in the league, arguably the best at this point, even over Aaron Donald, not better in their respective careers, but going into this season, if you told me you can have one of these two players, who would you rather have? There's a case to be made for Chris Jones after the season that he had last year compared to Donald, who went through a bunch of injuries. So I get why he's trying to get his money right now, but come on, get out of here with that. That's ridiculous. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. T-Bone from the 314. What are your thoughts on the Seahawks? Doesn't seem to be a whole lot of hype around them. Do you think they could be a playoff team this year? I love the Seahawks. I, I think they can win the NFC West. I I think they're going to improve defensively. I This is the second year under the same scheme. So I think defensively they have they improve. They do a better job stopping the run, which killed them last year. And if Geno Smith plays like he did last year, he's got a ton of weapons around him. I, I think they are the best team in the NFC West. I don't think they're a... I don't think they're a fringe playoff team. I think they are a playoff team because I think they're winning the division this year. I think it all comes down to whether or not Devon Witherspoon is what we think he is. And I think he's good. I think he's awesome. I've loved him at Illinois. I don't think he's played in the preseason. If that guy can be like by week six up to snuff, that defense could be really good. And they added Bobby Wagner back to the group and he was awesome for the Rams last year. If they can be a solid defense, like 14th, 15th, something like that. That offense is going to be really good this year. We saw Geno Smith last year was not a fluke. 
the way he played was real. I mean, he can be Derek Carr, um, previous like Bengals edition of Andy Dalton. He can be a guy that distributes the ball around pretty well. And when you have DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Jackson Smith and Jigba after the first month or so, that's going to be a really good offense. So I, I don't think they're the best team in the NFC West. I still reserve that for the San Francisco 49ers. But I think they're the second best team in that division, and I think they absolutely are a playoff team this year. I think they'll get the uh, one of the NFC wildcard teams. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into some NFL quick hitters, including the biggest NFL story that we didn't touch there in the questions and answers. Are we going to see a trade of one of the preeminent running backs in the NFL a week before the NFL season begins? We'll get to that coming up at 1215. But next, are we seeing why the Cardinals right now are so hesitant to move their left-handed bats? Might be something that's going into the offensive struggles lately. We'll explain next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Most of my peers agreed. They're like, yeah, I don't know how you guys are in this spot, but we like, and then they listed like six of our position players or eight of our position players. And um, so I think, I think we learned that we're in a good spot on the position player side. And obviously we, we need to improve our pitching. Obviously we need to do a better job, you know, with, with base running and defense and one run games and all, all sorts of things have gone wrong this year that, that we need to, to clean up going forward. And I, and I have confidence we will, but I do think we're in a really good spot on the position player side in terms of guys who are here, guys who are coming, guys who we control. It's, good spot alongside tanner hendrickson and grant francis i'm brandon kylie that was michael gershon with us right after the trade deadline talking about where the cardinals view themselves in relation to their position players they would prefer if possible to keep all of them makes sense they've got some pretty good position players on this roster i also think part of why they feel the way they do about their left-handed bats is what we've seen recently from the offense. Derek Gould wrote about this in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch earlier today. He said, with left-handed hitters Lars Nupar, Nolan Gorman, and Brendan Donovan all on the injured list, the Cardinals have rearranged their order and still not sparked much in offense. In the sixth games heading into yesterday's series finale, the Cardinals had hit 225 as a team with an OPS below 650. They had scored just 16 runs in those six games. Of those 16 runs, seven came in their win during that week. So in the other five games, they had scored a total of nine runs. T-Bone, it's not hard for us to understand why they love these hitters. Nolan Gorman and Lars Nupar have an OPS of above 800 this season. They would be the first pair of left-handed hitters for the Cardinals to have an OPS in one season of greater than 800 since Matt Carpenter and Matt Adams did so in 2013. If you want to go back further than that, the last pair to do so in a season for the Cardinals was Jim Edmonds and Chris Duncan in 2006. This is the kind of left-handed hitters that the Cardinals have been seeking for a decade now. Giving up one of the three is a really difficult ask for any team. But when you look at the way that this Cardinals lineup is constructed, it's a pretty good one. They've got guys that get on base. They've got guys that hit for power. They've got guys that hit for contact. They've got really nice diversity, both in terms of handedness and the profiles of hitters up and down the lineup. 
So when you look at what their offseason plans are going to be, T-Bone, the to-do list of trying to find that pitching, does this make you squeamish, what we've seen lately, about trading one of those left-handed bats that other teams are going to be asking for? A little bit, but I still am open to doing it. And I I think the Cardinals are going to have the right approach in terms of the offseason of, yeah, look, we don't want to move any of these guys because, yes, they are great hitters and great players. So that I understand. But... I think you can get away with moving one. Two, I would would not do. If you go to, I'm going to use Seattle as my place placeholder here. You go to Seattle and you're interested. They say, you know, we are listening to offers on Logan Gilbert, but we want Donovan and Newbar. No, I'm leaving the table because I do think I wow. think I don't think you can. I, this lineup, I think you can pluck one of the lefties out, whether it be Newbar, Burl, or uh, Newbar, Donovan. I I would probably keep Gorman's name out of that because I think he is different. Um, but I think you can pull out one of Newport or one of Donovan. I don't think you can pull out one of them and Gorman or both of them because you've seen what the lineup is. But I, I think one of them you can get away with. I I don't know if you need two on-base lefties, and that's been my biggest stance, and that's what Donovan and Newport are because you're right. This lineup is very um, diversified in terms of what the skill set is of all the players that are in that lineup. But I think you don't need two of the on-base guys, and I understand what the Cardinals doing that left-right, left-right. I think what I would do is then Goldie's that quote-unquote second on-base guy for the Cardinals in the lineup because he's losing some of his slug. It's clear this year. I mean, there's a chance he finishes with the worst slugging percentage of his career, but he's still going to be a high OBP guy. He's still going to hit for a decent average. I think he just kind of fills that role, and he's the right-handed version of that. And then someone like Alec Burleson slides in as the other left-handed bat that you have, and he brings a different profile as being a contact hitter to the lineup. So I thought Ollie Marmel put this well when he was talking to Derek Gould about it yesterday. Here's what Ollie's quote was. Our lineup is really damn good. It's constructed really well when guys are healthy as well. Really, really well. When you look at it, Donovan, Newt, and Gorman, those guys are really good for our lineup from a production standpoint and from a strategy and lineup construction standpoint as well. What he's referencing there, and Derek explains it well in his piece. You guys should go read it over in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I think it's worth your time. He talks about how when you go through the Cardinals lineup when they're all healthy, it doesn't matter what the pitcher handedness is. The Cardinals have a chance to be able to exploit it. Because when they're healthy, you can't bring in a right-handed pitcher to face the top of that order because then they have to face Lars Newtbar and Nolan Gorman at the top, in the top three. Yeah, you get them to face uh, Paul Goldschmidt right on right, but you got to go around those other two left-handed bats. And it continues throughout the lineup. Okay, you want to bring them in a little bit later. Maybe, no, uh, let's say Nolan Arenado's batting fourth for you, right? And you've got Wilson Contreras on that day as batting fifth. So let's bring in a right-handed pitcher for L- Nolan Arenado. Well, he doesn't have significant splits. Same thing is true for Wilson Contreras. Now you're going up against the six-hole hitter that you have to bring him in for. Well, maybe that, depending on the day, is either Brendan Donovan or Nolan Gorman. Well, that's not a great at-bat for whoever that pitcher is. It just presents a whole lot of opportunities for the Cardinals to be able to exploit. Alec Burleson, I think, is a really interesting piece of this that you mentioned. I view Alec Burleson as a pinch hitter, fourth outfielder, potential DH for you. That's what I think his role is going to be long-term for the Cardinals. Now, the Cardinals have to decide this offseason, what is the value of that type of a player? Is it worth it to hold on to that chip? Or is it better for us to trade that piece for whatever we can get for him on the open market if we include him in a package or if he's the headliner, however teams view him? I think the guys that I would not be interested in trading as as much as I can get away with it 
would be Newt Bar, Gorman, and Donovan. Those three, to me, are three critical components to winning a World Series here in St. Louis. But, and this is where it gets to, every time that we have these conversations, if you aren't willing to spend the money to outspend your problems, then it comes down to, well, then we have to trade one of these guys. That's really the question for the Cardinals this offseason. Are you willing to spend the money to be able to keep these players, or do you have to trade one of these guys in order to go out there and get the pitching that you crave? Because those are your two options. And it's really, it's not even a John Moselock question. It's a Bill DeWitt question. And I don't know how he's going to view this. Because as I look at the lineup and I put together what it can look like next year, I know Stalter's talked about this ad nauseum and the morning show talks about it. Everybody wants to see them have a stagnant lineup where it is everybody knows where they're playing every day. You know what the best way to do that is for this team? To keep all these lefties. Because Nolan Gorman can be an everyday second baseman for you. He's good enough defensively to get by. Mason Wynn is now your everyday shortstop. Well, now you've got your infield set. Goldie at first, Arenado at third, Gorman at second, Wynn at short. You've got the catcher situation, which maybe is a little in flux, but Contreras plus either Herrera or Kisner are going to be that. One of the others is probably going to be the DH. And now your outfield kind of fills in as well because you've got Newtbar out there, you've got Donovan out there, and you've got Walker out there. Boom, your lineup is set, dude. You're done. You don't have to worry about anything. You're not playing the matchups. Those guys are your best hitters. That is your best team, and it's going out there every day. But the only way that's possible is if you go out there and spend the necessary money in the free agent market. And I don't know how the ownership views that. Yeah, and, and look, again, though I am the guy that's always on this show saying I would trade a Noop or I would trade a Gorman for one of those top-end arms, I, I'm with you in terms of I don't want to do that, but I'm operating under the assumption of whether it is, A, you're not going to spend on three starters, or also, two, the fact of the matter that if you don't want to spend on – you spend on two starters, but you can get more of a cost control young legitimate arm at the top end of the rotation then allows more money to go to the bullpen as well those are kind of my assumptions when I'm saying am I willing to pluck a new bar or a Gorman out of the lineup I am but there's also a lot of like caveats to that of okay sure we have the money to spend on the rotation but do we want to divvy up some of that funds to go help the bullpen out this offseason which is a major need for them this offseason is to restructure this bullpen so that's why I say the idea of do you need two on base guys? Because that's the, the only thing I push I back ask, on. Before we get there, the question that I would ask is could you get one of those, maybe multiple of those relievers by trading Tommy Edmond, who I didn't mention in the everyday lineup, by trading maybe it's Alec Burleson, who I didn't mention as part of your everyday lineup. Maybe that's where you go and say, hey, these these young starters that we have that are down in the minor leagues, we're going to flip some of those guys for relievers at the major league level. Hey, those infielders that we traded for at the deadline, so JC and um, fr- what is it, Fredo? Um, oh, pr- um, Prado. Yeah, uh, that's at the AAA level right now. We're flipping those guys to be able to get major league ready relievers. I could see them going that route instead and saying, hey, we're going to keep our position players. We're going to pay for the starting pitching that we need. And then now we're going to go flip some of our depth pieces. Tyler O'Neill, Brent, not Brendan Donovan, uh, Tommy Edmond, those Dylan Carlson, those types of players. We're going to flip them for relievers. And that's the way that we're going to be able to construct our roster going into next year. Now we've got cost controlled relievers. We've got position players that we love and we paid the freight and we're just we're really bearing down and we're hoping like hell that it's going to work out for us the way that it hasn't for so many other teams, but it's going to be different for us, right? That's the way that I think that's the best case scenario for the Cardinals this offseason. No matter how you slice it, there's risk. 
there is huge risk involved. Either you risk the chance that you are giving up on Kyle Schwarber or Ben Zobrist or whatever you think it is that you could have right now in Lars Nupar, who has the same OPS plus this season as Bryce Harper. Like you're giving up on that or you're giving up a ton of money and flexibility in future years to be able to go get that pitching. Yeah, and I think that is a possibility because I do think they're probably going to trade for at least one reliever. Because look at what they, I mean, I keep referencing this, but they got Jojo Romero for Mundo Sosa. Can you get something more for a guy like a Tommy Edmond who I think is probably a better big leaguer than Edmundo Sosa, and he can play more positions than Edmundo Sosa. But again, like, I don't want to trade him. Why? Because he's probably the emergency plan if Mason Wynn doesn't work out. So kind of pull that name off. Burleson, I assume, is a guy that's in the starting lineup next year, whether that's in left or as the DH. And especially if you said that um, Gorman's the second baseman, I'm assuming Donovan's probably in left unless yep. you're put, because you didn't say Edmund as a starter. Correct. So that means he's not in center field. That means Newbar's in center. Correct. So I assume Burleson's a starter in this lineup, and I assume that they don't want to trade him. Not necessarily. Which part? I, I don't know that Burleson would be a starter in this lineup. Where is he playing? DH, probably. Contreras might be there, too. Maybe. Herrera. My assumption is that they're probably going to have Contreras catching still. I don't think they're giving up on that. Yeah. Even though I wouldn't be opposed. Yeah. But, I think you can, like, you, there's some flexibility there, but sure, if Burleson's still here, fine. I, got I, no, I, I like Burleson. I'm more than happy to keep him. And, and, and me too. And all these conversations just show that everything is on the table. And yeah. again, like, you're not giving up a, a Newt bar for a Brian Wu in Seattle. You're giving him up for a Logan Gilbert or a Dylan Cease. And that's where these conversations start to really pick up is, what do the White Sox decide to do? We talked about this yesterday. If they say, hey, we're blowing it up, we got to start from scratch, okay, well then I would seriously be looking at the Dylan Cease market and saying, okay, how does Dylan Cease compare to, okay, if we can get him, we have more money to spend on the bullpen, or are there better bullpen arms that we can trade for, and we like the starters on the free agent market better? There's all these different avenues that the Cardinals are going to be weighing this offseason. Can we make one promise to each other? One promise. Uh, well, Can I we not know. bring up the Mariners pitchers a single time before we get a report that they're available? From now until whenever that report comes out, can we please not bring up their pitchers? Dude, the Mariners are 71 and 56. They're a game and a half behind the Texas Bleepin' Rangers for the first place team in the AL West. And we think they're going to give up their starting pitching? Why? Their general manager came on public radio, on MLB Network Radio, right before the deadline and said, Our identity. Think about that for a second. The identity of our team is built through our rotation. And we think in St. Louis that they're just going to be like, yeah, you know what? We'll go ahead and give you one of those guys. No, no, of course not. They're going to go to the free agent market, add to that lineup and maybe trade from their minor league depth to be able to add to their their lineup as well. They're not getting rid of their pitching. And until we hear something otherwise, can we make a promise on this show we're no longer going to use them as the team that the Cardinals are going to trade for? I will make the promise, even though I'm clearly targeted in this this anger that you're lashing out in this promise, even though I said I was using them as a placeholder. Yeah, Let's use the Marlins now as the placeholder. Let's go back to that. Jesus Luzardo, Edward uh, Edward Cabrera, those guys in the Marlins organization, they are now the placeholder for the Cardinals. Fine, I'll I'll make the promise, but I'm not happy about it. Coming up next, some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters here on BK and Ferrario. Alex is out this week. He'll be back in on Monday. T-Bone, 
it sure sounds like Jonathan Taylor is legitimately available on the market right now. There was a report last night from Adam Schefter that the Colts are telling teams today is the final day, or excuse me, Tuesday is the final day that they can put in their offers for Jonathan Taylor. I do wonder, I've got a little bit of skepticism in the back of my mind because we saw this play out with, I think it was Austin Eckler earlier in the offseason where the Chargers told him, all right, go find yourself a trade. Go find yourself the team that's going to take you on and pay you the big money that you're looking for. And it resulted in Austin Eckler going back to the team and saying, hey, uh, what about a couple million bucks? Came (laughs) back with his head down. I couldn't find a trade. (laughs) So I do wonder if what the Colts are doing here is saying, all right, you go find that team that's going to pay you the $17 million a season. If you find that, you know what? We'll, We'll go ahead and make it work. We'll make it work for you and for us. But they are calling his bluff and believing that he's not going to find that team. And if he doesn't, I think the Colts believe he'll come back to them and say, all right, I'll take a little less, but let's get this deal done. T-Bone, do you think it's more likely that Jonathan Taylor ends up back with the Colts or that he ends up trading by getting traded by next Tuesday? Actually, he gets traded by next Tuesday. Now, I don't know if he's getting the $17 million he's looking for, but I think he does get traded because of the teams that are connected to him. We've seen the Rams make no sense, but they would pull off a dumb move like this. Um, I, Baltimore's connected to him. Miami's connected to him. Mm-hmm. Those are teams that I don't know if they fit the category of being all in. Close. But they're close. And they're close enough to where they say maybe Jonathan Taylor's the guy that gets us up there with Kansas City, gets us up there with Cincinnati, gets us up there with Buffalo. I think that's why I believe he's going to be traded. I think it's a bidding war between Miami and Baltimore, if I'm being honest. I think one of those teams are the ones that pull the trigger and say, you know what? Screw it. We need to catch up in the AFC. This is the time for us to go in and do it and get into that first tier and try and win the the conference this year. So I think he does get moved. If I was purely doing this from a fantasy perspective, like we're playing fantasy football, we're drafting together, and you find out, boom, second round of your draft, it's announced. Jonathan Taylor has been traded. You're on the clock. He gets traded to blank. That means that you're going to pick him right now. Who's that team? Where do you want him to be from a fantasy production uh, perspective? Baltimore. Really? I love I love the idea of him in Baltimore because I, I think they're lacking a running game and it prevents them from really taking that step as an elite offense because I think they could potentially become um, one-dimensional this year with Lamar in the throwing game. Now, look, Lamar's still going to be a guy that's going to be running, so maybe they don't become that. But Jonathan Taylor adds a whole other element to it. They can run the ball with Taylor. They can run with Jackson. Oh, by the way, they've got OBJ as a wide receiver that Jackson can throw to, and that offense is going to be able to take that next step this year. Now they've got a competent OC. I think Baltimore's the team for me. My team is the Miami Dolphins. I I think they're interesting, too. Like, I'd probably take him if he goes Miami. I would love to see him in that offense. We've seen what Kyle Shanahan running backs have done. It doesn't matter who you throw back there. Elijah Mitchell starts, and it's like, okay, put him into your fantasy lineup. This guy's going for a buck 50 and two touchdowns. That's just the way that it works, right? If you put him in what is essentially the Kyle Shanahan offense in the Southeast, I think that Jonathan Taylor might lead the league in rushing this year. Like he has that kind of potential in that specific offense. It's not a great offensive line, no doubt about it, but Taylor is special enough as a runner that I think he can make it work. And he's got all of the qualities that they want down in Miami. You look at their running backs, all of them are incredibly fast. 
Look at what Jonathan Taylor did at the NFL Combine. So for me, that would be the team that I would be most interested in him going to. Grant. What about the Minnesota Vikings? Who's their running back going into this season? Alexander because, Madison. So that's a team for me that I would, if I were the Vikings, I'd be all over Jonathan Taylor at this point. Because after losing Delvin Cook, who was very productive for them when he was healthy, like they're not going to have that with Madison, I, at least, unless he surprises. So I'd be going after Jonathan Taylor we if I were the Vikings. got a lot of people saying Philly. That's yeah. another really fun one. My concern would be this. We've seen this with them in the past. They will rotate those running backs in and out no matter who it is. Whether you love them or you hate them, they're going to get playing time. So, like, Kenneth Gainwell, that guy's getting third down work next year, <laughs> even if you have Jonathan Taylor in the mix. So, I, I like it from a purely fit perspective. That's the best offensive line he could go to. They're going to score a ton of points. But... Jalen Hurts is going to vulture a bunch of touchdowns from you at the goal line. That's not great for Jonathan Taylor's fantasy value. And he's probably not going to be on the field a whole lot on third down. So he's not going to get the same reception value there either. So while I I get it and I would be excited if he lands there, I think there's a little bit of a diminished value compared to what our expectations would be. And I don't think there's a team, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that feels all in in the NFC outside of San Francisco and they've got the running back because they made that move last year. Yeah, I would agree with you. Like, I think that that side of the conference is they're more in build mode. Yeah. And whereas like, the AFC is in we have arrived mode. Yeah. And, and like the Eagles are the we have arrived mode for me. And yeah. like they're the favorites in the NFC. So maybe I could hear them making that all in push. I think for the Taylor. Cowboys are kind of in that category. Like this offseason, getting Stephon Gilmore, going out and getting Brandon Cooks. Those are moves you make if you're all in. But they have a really good running yeah, back already. Yeah, you don't already. need to improve upon Tony Pollard. So. That's where I don't think they make a lot of sense. If the Lions didn't draft Jameer Gibbs in the first round, I could see them being a team that would be interested, but they did. They they just drafted him. Same thing for the Falcons. If they hadn't taken Bajan Robinson in the first round, well, then I would be connecting the Falcons to them every day of the week. But they did. So all of the obvious candidates, same thing for the Seahawks. They've got two running backs that they took in the second round recently. The 49ers just traded for Christian McCaffrey all the likely landing spots that you could find in the NFC, they have recently invested heavily in the running back position other than the Philadelphia Eagles. So that's why we connect them uh, in this type of a scenario. It'd be a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Don't get me wrong. But I I just, if I had to place my bet, by the way, to answer my own question, I think he ends up in Indianapolis on opening night. I still believe that to be true. I, I have less confidence in that today than I did yesterday. Do you think he would get dealt at the deadline? No. Okay. Because like that's so. where I think Philly would become an interesting team. Because I could see where maybe Dallas. I think Dallas is going to be really good, but I could see where Philly either has an injury in the running back room, or they look across the NFCs and go, "Holy bleep, Dallas is better than even we were expecting, and we knew they were going to be good." We got to we got to add Jonathan Taylor to the mix to help us get to that level. All right, let's go uh, NFL quick hitters. Next thing up here. Yesterday, I saw this tweet from John Ewing, who works for uh, BetMGM. Most bet to make the playoffs this year, the most bet teams to make the playoffs in terms of the number of tickets sold to the most people that place bets, right? The Broncos are the most bet team right now in Vegas to make the playoffs in 2023 at two to one. See, this is the kind of stuff that's why Vegas is able to build nice things. Second team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. The second most tickets on a team to make the playoffs this season. Pittsburgh Steelers. I actually like that one. Third, and this just speaks to everybody trying to make a buck, get rich quick, is the Arizona Cardinals. The Arizona Cardinals are third most at 10 to 1 to be able to make the playoffs. All right. The five team or the three teams that have the most money on them. So 
big time sharks coming into Vegas. They're placing a $500,000 wager on these teams, right? Most bet teams in terms of money that has been placed on them. The commanders are number one at three to one. What the Falcons, my squad at basically even odds. And then the Steelers at plus 135. So everybody likes the Steelers this year going into the season. If you T-Bone could place one bet on an NFL team to make the playoffs, and Grant, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Based on their odds, so for example, if you're placing a bet on the Kansas City Chiefs, like you're getting nothing in return for them to be able to make the playoffs, who would you be placing a bet on this year? The Chiefs are at minus 500, so you have to bet $500 for to win $100. The team that I would do it on, because again, I think their quarterback takes the next step, and I think they kind of back their way into the playoffs. And it, let's just be honest: the best money to bet in this scenario is a team in the NFC, because there's not to, uh, Pittsburgh's interesting, but any team outside the AFC is going to be tough to look at that has these plus odds. Give me the Bears. I think the Bears are the team potentially that could get into the playoffs. I think they can back their way in if Fields takes that step, which I think he will. Plus one seventy two. I like the Bears. Grant? See, I was looking on FanDuel at you can bet on which teams are going to be wild card teams specifically. So not just like making the playoffs, but specifically the wild cards. And uh, Dallas is at plus 175. And because, oh, that's fun. Because Philly's going to sure. probably win that division. I, I like love, that bet. So they're minus 225 bet. to make the playoffs. Yeah, but to be a wild card specifically. I like that bet a lot. Yeah, but also I like the Detroit Lions in that to make a wild card too, which is at plus 280. Who would you have winning the division in that scenario? Probably Minnesota. Okay. I'd go back to Minnesota there. But Detroit to hit the wild card I like. Um, and then in the AFC, same exact thing with the wild card scenario. I really like the Jets at plus 260. Because Bills are basically a lock to win that division, I'd say. I love the Jets at plus two sixty. Also, Miami for a wild card. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the wild card yeah, yeah, yeah. odds are interesting. Miami. Because you're kind of saying like, okay, I'm going to hedge my bet here. I think mm-hmm. Team X is winning the division. I think they are. They're the second best team in the. I like that. Yeah, the Dolphins are also plus two sixty. Seahawks to to make the wild card. Seahawks to make the wild card plus two eighty. That's my bet. Forget that. That's my bet right there. I like the 49ers better to win their division. I think the Seahawks are a really good team, though, that can win 10-plus games this year. I like them to to make the wild card. Forget that. Go the Super Bowl odds on the Seahawks. If I'm... (laughs) Plus 35. Plus 3500, by the way. 3500 is what we call that in the biz. Um, I like the Tennessee Titans to win the division at 3-1. I don't think it's going to happen, but at three to one, those are good enough odds that I could uh, put a little little money down on that. I like that one. One of the best coaches in the NFL. I think people are sleeping on the weapons that they have, and that defense should be pretty good again. I'm not going to sleep on the Titans while everybody else does. I feel like I do every year, and they always win eight, nine games for the most part. I think they end up being a little better than expected this year. Again, I do not think they're going to win the division. But if I'm going to make a bet and I want some decent odds on it, three to one, I think that's a pretty decent one right there. I'll tell you another one that I like from this is Baltimore to hit the wild card at plus 185. Because I like Cincinnati to win the division. Baltimore like to hit the wild card. I like those odds. I like, just bet on everybody to make the wild card. Just bet on them all. This, this is as open as I've seen the wild card race in a long time. Like in the, a- in the AFC, think about the team somebody from a really good class of teams is going to miss the playoffs this year they're going to feel like their season complete failure because of it miami buffalo the jets 
the Ravens, the Bengals, the Jaguars, the Chiefs, the Chargers. I didn't mention the Browns in there. That's nine teams. Only seven of them can make the playoffs this season. I just mentioned nine that feel like they are all in. I didn't mention the Steelers. I didn't mention the Titans. I didn't mention the Broncos, who some people clearly think are going to make the playoffs this year. The AFC is a gauntlet, dude. Trying to get to the playoffs out of that that, uh, conference is brutal. All right, now let's talk about the NFC wildcard (laughs) Meanwhile, the (laughs) NFC, you're going to have like the Washington Commanders get in. Coming up next, Katie Wu says there are three arms that people view as the top of the market for the Cardinals specifically. We'll tell you who those three arms are next. You might be surprised by one of them here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You know, I think Snell is actually a, a good name for them uh, because I think he'll be uh, attainable. He won't cost necessarily the very top of the market. I would assume that Aaron Nola uh, and uh, maybe Julio Urias are, are the top of the market. And uh, then you've got Giolito and Snell probably the next two. And if you can get Snell to uh, a Gossman-type contract, I think I'd be into it. That was Eno Saris on with us a few weeks ago talking about the potential Cardinals targets for their rotation this offseason. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we will dive into the junk drawer. But T-Bone, Blake Snell is one potential option for the Cardinals this offseason. There are many others, of course. And as you look to the free agent market, Katie Wu had a piece earlier today over on The Athletic where she broke down who some of the top options are. I call this BK reads Katie Wu's piece from the athletic quote. No, the Cardinals aren't going to swing three trades for starting pitching this offseason. The front office will have to pursue the free agent market as well. And ownership will have to increase their payroll significantly in order to do so. She then continues. Aaron Nola has a 4.5 ERA. That's the third highest mark in his career, but he's durable and has the stuff that can play at the top end of the rotation. Blake Snell leads Major League Baseball with a 2.65 ERA, and he brings the swing and miss stuff that the Cardinals need. Sonny Gray has posted ERAs slightly over three in both of the seasons that he spent in Minnesota. In Katie's opinion, those are the three arms worth looking into. That's what I want to really hone in on here. T-Bone, we've been operating under the different tiers of this free agent market. And when you look at it, we can cross one more off now. We already had pretty much crossed off Shohei Otani. Now we can cross him off entirely. He's not an arm going into next year. He doesn't help you if you need a pitcher. Well, that second tier of pitchers was Julio Urias, Blake Snell, and Aaron Nola. We all kind of agree Julio Urias is not an option for the Cardinals. So it's really those two pitchers, Snell and Nola. And then that third tier of pitcher really includes the likes of Sonny Gray, Lucas Giolito, Eduardo Rodriguez. And then if you wanted to bring back one of Flaherty or Montgomery, they would fit into that criteria as well. How do you feel about Sonny Gray being mentioned in the same class as Blake Snell and Aaron Nola? A little concerned if that's how the Cardinals are viewing it, because I don't think Sonny Gray should be in the same class as those guys, because I think Snell and Nola are clear aces that should be in a separate tier from Sonny Gray. If the Cardinals had interest in Sonny Gray, that's fine as long as you're also bringing in a Nola or a Snell to kind of pair with him at the top of the rotation. But 
it should not be, okay, we're going to go get Sonny Gray and then look at the other tiers for other arms because Sonny Gray is another classic Cardinals. Hey, squint, and yeah, he looks like a one. He's just not. I think he's a great option for the Cardinals, but I don't think he should be mentioned in the same sentence as Aaron Nola and Blake Snell, in my opinion. Why not? I don't think he's a guy that I look at as an as an ace. I know his numbers are good. What, I just view him as a two when I'm looking at him. The reason why I ask, when I look at his numbers over the last three years compared to Blake Snell specifically, they're kind of the same pitcher, dude. Blake Snell has better stuff. I want to say that on the front end. Blake Snell has much better stuff than what Sonny Gray does. But when they pitch and we actually see how it goes – because Snell walks so many more batters than Sonny Gray does, the effectiveness is more or less the same. Over the last three years, Blake Snell has started 75 games. Sonny Gray has started 74. Over the last three years, they've pitched essentially the same number of innings. Blake Snell is at 387. Sonny Gray is at 391. You want to look at ERA, 3.4 versus 3.4. You want to look at fielding independent pitching, 3.4 versus 3.4. The walk rate is significantly higher for Snell the strikeout rate is quite a bit higher for Snell. You want to look at the stuff numbers that um, our guy Eno Saris, who you heard coming into this segment, talked about? Well, Sonny Gray has a pitching plus, which is basically t- it's an all-encompassing number on a scale of 100, of 102. You know what Blake Snell's is over the last three seasons? I'm assuming lower or the same if you're bringing this up. 102. I'm not telling you that Sonny Gray is a better pitcher than Blake Snell. I'm not. But what I am saying is that when you look at the results from each of those two guys over the last three seasons, they've been remarkably similar. And if I tell you that Sonny Gray is going to cost you a three-year, $60 million contract, something like that, because he's 33 years old, and Blake Snell is going to end up costing you a five-year deal worth 150-ish or 120 in that 125 to 150 range, 25 to 30 million dollars per year. I can see how you talk yourself into Sonny Gray over Blake Snell in that scenario. Now, I've said all along, I want to make this very clear. I would go after Aaron Nola, but I do find it interesting that she included Sonny Gray in that group with Snell and Nola. And I wonder if teams are going to view it that way as well, because when you look into the numbers, Snell and Gray have basically been the same pitcher over the last three seasons yeah and maybe teams will I I just have it in the back of my mind that when I look at Snell for whatever reason maybe it is because he's got more strikeouts per nine he is an ace to me and I look at Sonny Gray and I always feel like he's a number two like he's not a guy that I don't think that I would say okay I want him starting game one for me in the playoffs I would I've always viewed Sonny Gray as I want him like in game two or game three. And when I look at Snell, I, I look at him and I go, I want to give him the ball in game one because I want to go up 1-0 in the series. But is that because, like, I guess my question would be, are we viewing Sonny Gray incorrectly the way that we viewed Jordan Montgomery incorrectly? Because I think Jordan Montgomery pitched like a two or a three here in St. Louis and he's doing the same thing down in Texas, but everybody views him as a four because of his stuff. He doesn't profile that way. And I wouldn't bet on him long term as a two, to be fair. Sonny Gray, is it, is it kind of the same thing where we view him as a three or a four, but in reality he has actually pitched like a number two now for three, four, five years in a row? It's possible, yeah. I, it could be that where he just has gotten this mantra as a two and it just cannot be shaken off. In baseball, and maybe baseball people do view him as a 
number one, but I, I've never really gotten the sense that people view fair, him as an ace. I don't view, I'm not even talking about as a one. I, I think the conversation is really like, is Blake Snell actually a two because of the lack of innings? I know you don't view it that way, but I think people in baseball might view it that way. And he's fragile. Like he's got some injury stuff in his past as well. I don't know that there's a single legitimate number one on the market. Like, I don't know that at this point in his career, Aaron Nola is a classic number one starter. Aaron Nola is probably a two. Like, you look at what the Phillies have done. I think Zach Wheeler's their best pitcher. Agreed. And I think Aaron Nola profiles as a really, really good number two, maybe even an overqualified number two. I think Blake Snell, on a best case scenario, is a number two starter for you. And I think the same thing is probably true for Sonny Gray. So, what we might be saying here is, there's not a number one, and you're going to have to figure that out, and you're going to have to pay 25 to $30 million for a number two starter. So I don't think that means you have to go out there and get a number one. I think it just means you have to build the back end of your rotation to be stronger to make up for the fact that you don't have that classic number one starter like the Braves do or the Dodgers do. And, and maybe I view Snell as – because I think Snell is a number one. I know he doesn't eat innings. But I think the whole innings thing can kind of be blown out of proportion in modern baseball. Don't get me wrong. You need somebody to eat innings in a rotation. I think that's where Michaelis comes in. Honestly, that's where a Sonny Gray would come in if you brought him in. But Snell's so electric in his short burst of innings that I think it's it washes out not covering him. And maybe he has the mantra as a number one. Why? Because he's gotten to the pinnacle of pitching. He that's won fair. a Cy Young back in 2018 when he went 21-5 and five and had a 1.89 ERA. And he didn't walk as many people then either. That was a 3.2 walks per nine compared to five now, which is insane. Um, so maybe that's why I put Snell in a different category. He's won the Cy Young, so he's always going to stick also, in the back of my mind as an ace. Playoff success that year, too. Yes. When, when you look back to what he did in 2020 in that postseason, he was really freaking good for the Rays. And then we all certainly remember what he was able to do in the postseason when he had that no hitter going as well, or the what, what inning was he the sixth inning, something like that. Yeah. Um, and they ended up taking him out against the Dodgers and lost that game. So um, we remember that. And we remember it so fondly that we think big game pitcher, that guy's done it on the biggest stage. And so therefore he, we, we apply that to him as being a number one or two, as opposed to Sonny Gray. I don't know if he can do it or not. Like we just haven't seen him on the biggest possible stage. He had one opportunity when he was in New York. Nothing about his opportunity in New York, New York went well. Is that because he just can't hang? Is that because he's a bad pitcher when he's got the stage being the brightest? Because I, I think the answer's probably no. This year in Minnesota, he's been really good for a team that we don't view as a contender. But man, they're going to make the playoffs this year and I in think, Minnesota. I think that's where he can kind of change the narrative around that's him. Good point. What's he look like in the playoffs this year? Because I, I don't read too much into New York. Because if you can pitch in Cincinnati, you're probably a good pitcher. That place is harder to pitch in than in New York. New York's tougher because of the um, atmosphere, because of the fan base, and because of the attention that the media has on you and how critical they can be. But Cincinnati, that's one of the toughest places to pitch in. That's maybe tougher than call. That's probably second toughest to Colorado. And he had success in Cincinnati. And the thing that's that is interesting about um, Sonny Gray to your question of can he be a is he a one or is he a two? How do you view him? It's interesting because like when I look at baseball savant page, I like to look and see what they say is similar pitchers compared on that guy's velocity and movement. Snell's stuff compares to like a one-inning reliever. That's how electric his stuff is. Yet he goes five and strikes out 11, yeah. and he has the command of a reliever where he walks five. Where it's interesting with Sonny Gray, his closest comps are Joe Musgrove. How do you view Joe Musgrove? A two. Okay, I'd agree. How do you view Merrill Kelly in Arizona? A one. Oh, really? I view him as a two. 
I think Gallon's the one. I think okay. Kelly's a two. And then Steven Strasburg when he we was do healthy. We this thing with Merrill Kelly where we don't view him as a, as good of a pitcher as I think that he actually is. I, I don't know why this happens. I, I think there's certain guys that we just put into a bucket and we say you can't leave that bucket. Well, you, you know what? Always... His, what? How do you get in the bucket? It's based on something in your past because he didn't find himself till he went to Japan. That's probably why he fell into that yeah, bucket. He's 30 years old when he broke yeah. into the big leagues. Because the, over the last two seasons, I mean, you look at what Merrill Kelly's done as a starter. He's got the innings. He's got the ERA. He's got everything that you could ask for. Doesn't have the greatest swing and miss stuff, but the dude has a 3.2 ERA since the start of last season. That's a one. Yeah. Like that, that's what I'm asking for from my number one starter. He takes the ball every fifth day. He's thrown 340 innings since the start of last year. Yeah, that dude's a number one. And how did you view Strasburg? Steven Strasburg? Yeah, one healthy. One. Okay. Yeah, I mean he's an he's an ace. And that and that's where the, that's where this conversation comes of again, I for some reason I I view Gray as a 2 or a 3. Yet I view in his stuff for me Musgrove, Kelly, those guys are twos in my opinion. And and that's maybe fair. and maybe it is because I'm I'm falling for that somehow they fell into that bucket and I can't shake that mantra from my own head. And I think everybody has a different criteria of what this is. Like some people, you ask them, "Hey, who's the number one starter?" And what they think in their mind is ace, and that's reserved for like ten pitchers. That's Spencer Strider. That's Clayton Kershaw. It's the best pitchers in the world. Max Scherzer when he was elite still. The, those are the best pitchers of the world. So if you want to have that criteria for a number one starter. Then, yeah, Merrill Kelly doesn't fit into that. Sonny Gray doesn't fit into that. But every team's going to have to have a number one starter. Some of them have more than one by the way that we would view it. I think that you could conceivably have Sonny Gray as your number one. And if you load that rotation up with other guys that in a typical scenario would be twos or threes, I think you can make that work in today's baseball. Because once you get into the postseason, what it does, though, is it puts more pressure on your plan for the bullpen. If you end up with Sonny Gray this offseason as your best acquisition, you better have just a dominant bullpen going into the playoffs next year because you have placed that much more emphasis on shortening games. We need five innings out of Sonny Gray. We need five innings out of whoever. Maybe it's Jesus Luzardo who you traded for. We need five innings out of Tyler Malley who we signed to be that back-end starter. And now we're going to the three guys that we already have here that we trust, Ryan Helsley, Gio, maybe it's JoJo. And then we added three dynamic arms to the back end of the pin as well. That's the kind of thing that you'll require. So you put more pressure in other ways, but it also potentially allows you a little more flexibility to do that by getting Sonny Gray instead of Urias, Snell, or Nola. Yeah. I would still go Aaron Nola. That would be my number one option and just figure it out from there. Coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Grant, do you guys have any familiarity with the Firefest? I have heard of it, but I don't really know a lot about it. You didn't see any of the documentaries about it or anything like that? I want to watch the one. I think there's one on Netflix. If there's I'm one not on mistaken. Netflix, another on Hulu. They're both pretty good. They're a little bit different. I would recommend both. I like the Netflix one a little better. It's the same way with me. It rings a bell, but I'm not like super familiar. So yeah. the Firefest was back in 2017. It was. Ja Rule was the celebrity that was associated with this, but Billy McFarland was the guy that really kind of spearheaded the whole operation. 
Now, my guy Billy decided I'm gonna I'm going to be in charge of a festival, right? You know, like your typical. There's one going on in St. Louis this weekend. I'm gonna get as many musical acts as I possibly can. We're gonna do this a little differently, though. We're gonna fly people into this deserted island. And we're going to build all of the infrastructure for this. We're going to set this up. It's going to be like Lala, but on a deserted island. And you got to pay a boatload of money to be able to get there. We'll have all of the meals paid for. It's going to be amazing, right? That's the idea. General concept. There's a lot more that went into it. But moral of the story. Gets a bunch of people to spend a crap ton of money. He gets all of the artists that are ready to go and everything. He doesn't have any of the infrastructure set up it all goes to crap quickly people get there they don't have any of the food that they had promised they're eating like bread with a piece of cheese Mm. and a piece of lettuce on it sounds like my dinner tonight it is a disaster the bathrooms don't work the way that they were supposed to people can't get off of the island it it is horrendous so all these people paid all of this money. He basically extorted them all out of all of this money. He ends up going to jail. Gets a six-year sentence for fraud. Wow, just Be- six? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, had a bunch of fines, all this different stuff, right? So this guy goes to jail. It becomes this big pop culture moment for everybody. And now there's been documentaries that have been made about it. Like Firefest is this big old thing that it's like, hey, if anything goes wrong, that's the Firefest of blank. Billy McFarland is back, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. Here's what he had to say the other day. We announced our first pre-sale on Sunday. They sold out very, very quickly. And I think this kind of all comes back to since 2016, Fire has had 32 billion impressions across social media, which makes us like the most talked about festival in the world. And we saw that in the past literally 36 hours convert to sales. Um, No lineup announced. We did not share the location and we saw that the first drop almost instantly. So it is just so incredible to finally have the support to make the fire dream a reality and to really share it with the world. I kind of feel like I'm the pilot of a single engine propeller plane right now flying through the storm where everybody wants to watch. And whether I crash or land, they want to have a front row seat as long as they're safe. So I think if I can kind of create that turbulence, then Fire Festival 2 will become a great cultural moment. Firefest tickets are on sale now. $499. You guys buying? No. You guys getting no. in? You guys I interested? I can't believe he would sell out. <laughs> Unbelievable. Not even a lineup? Not even a location? Firefest 2 is back. No lineup, no location announced. We're not sure any of the details at all. Billy McFarland, who went to prison for a few years, he got out early because, of course, he did. Good uh, behavior, I bet. He's in charge of this once again. Can't wait to find out how this one goes. Netflix documentary coming to a place near you very soon. I'm I'm sure. I, I am so shocked that he sold out. Coming up next, Bill Connolly writes about college football for ESPN.com. He's also a Mizzou fan. We'll get his thoughts on Mizzou going into the season and who's his dark horse candidate to come out and be this year's TCU. We'll ask Bill Connolly next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
by Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline. And when I see this man's name on our guest list, it means that it is officially college football season. Bill Connolly joining us here on the show. You can read his work at ESPN.com and follow him on Twitter at ESPN underscore Bill C. Bill, we appreciate the time as always, man. This is officially the busy season for you. How you doing, my man? I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, doing really well. So let's start out with the obvious here locally, and that is with the Missouri Tigers. Um, it is kind of put up or shut up time in a way for Eli Drinkwitz. He's recruited well. We've seen some success on the field. What is your level of anticipation for this Missouri football team? Is there a reason to be excited? Well, I mean, I think so. Like, basically, <laughs> we're at a point here where, I mean, he, he entered last season. Twelve months ago, he entered, uh, you know, season three with two humongous questions. He hadn't figured out his path on defense yet, and he hadn't figured out his quarterback. And at the very least, one of those two hmm. uh, directions is kind of set. Uh, the defense was outstanding to get with Blake Baker, and there's really no reason to think it will be – all that much worse this year with all the main or almost all of the main components last year back. Obviously, the pass rush gets a little bit of a retooling, so we'll see how they handle that. But the secondary should be great. The linebackers are among the best in the SEC, um, and so that's one <laughs> that's one you know box checked. And on the other side. We still don't know about the quarterback. We know that the running backs should be as good or better than last season. The receiving core is still pretty exciting, even without Dominic Lovett. And it should be the best, or at least the least average offensive line that he's had so far. And that's all pointed in the right direction. We just, you know, he's on year four here, and and he was an offensive coach and an offensive coordinator and, and a quarterback's guy, and he hasn't figured out the quarterback position yet. We have to see if he's figured it out now. Well, with that being said, Bill, what do you think the ceiling is for Missouri then this year if they've got some of these question marks on offense that you're just talking about? Well, I mean, I think if if they improve at the quarterback position, which, you know, whether that's because Brady Cook was injured all last year and he's healthy now and he's more experienced and therefore he's better, or if this better version of Brady Cook is beaten out by Sam Horn, um, either one of those suggests that there will be decent improvement at the quarterback position. And if there is, I mean, you're looking at a schedule where obviously the trip to Georgia is a loss. Even even if you assume that the home game against Tennessee is also a loss, um, you know, home against LSU too, you're still looking at nine games that are either projected wins or pretty close to it. And, and that doesn't mean they're going to win all nine of those games. But when you're talking about ceilings, it's not hard to talk yourself into an eight or nine game ceiling for this team, which will obviously be the best uh, record in a while. If the quarterback position doesn't improve, we're looking straight at another race to get to six and six. And, you know, eventually Missouri fans maybe get tired of that, but, um, but, but that kind of seems like where the stakes are right now. If they've got a quarterback, there are a lot of teams, a lot of wins on this schedule. Uh, and if they're still pretty mediocre there, you know, less so. It's funny how similar right now, Bill, the Missouri and Illinois football programs are. Now, Illinois is much more advanced on the offensive line. And philosophically speaking, they, they look at things a little bit differently, but Illinois has a great defense. They're bringing back a ton of talent in their front seven, and they have a real question at quarterback, and they've got to replace Chase Brown. When you think about which team is more likely to finish the year top 25 ranked, Bill, taking into account schedules, talent, everything, who do you think it is, Missouri or Illinois? Well, it's funny. I mean, Illinois obviously uh, had a lovely season last year, but with everything they lost, um, you know, they still have plenty of defensive talent, but that secondary was absolutely incredible and got just, you know, nuked by attrition and losing that and Chase Brown and your quarterback 
um, they are projected to fall back a little bit. And basically, Missouri and Illinois, are, in terms of my, like my FP plus uh, projections, they're almost exactly the same spot right now. Missouri is actually uh, projected to catch up and pass them by a little bit. But if you're talking about maybe who has the better path, um, you know, you can certainly make a case for Illinois at the very least. You know, the Penn State game early in the year, maybe that one's too tricky, but otherwise. They're projected favorites in five of the first six games of the year, and then they have a bunch of toss-ups after that, either toss-ups or extremely winnable home games against Indiana and Northwestern. So, you know, maybe the ceiling is a little bit higher there, but I do think Missouri probably catches them in terms of quality, and and if they don't, you know, they'll have a chance at at a very similar record, and, you know, Illinois' schedule might be a little bit easier in that regard. Bill, do you think they have a legitimate shot to win the Big Ten West this year? Uh, honestly, I don't. I, I mean, they, they, everything lined up perfectly for them last year to do it, um, and, and they couldn't get it done, obviously, the, the late-season slide. Um, I do think Wisconsin has a much, much higher ceiling. I think Iowa's got a much, much higher floor, um, and those are probably the two favorites. I mean, after that, like we've seen plenty of West Division races get super weird, and um, you know, it, it would certainly be just if the last Big Ten West race was super weird. So if Wisconsin doesn't click with this big offensive change. And if Iowa just crumbles under the, the negativity that the program has had <laughs> times in recent years, then, I mean, everything opens up from there. Purdue could get into the race. Illinois could get into the race. Uh, I'm not sure I can, uh, you know, offer Nebraska to that list, but Minnesota was already in that race. So you know, there's a lot that could happen, but I think it would take underachievement by both Wisconsin and Iowa. Man, talk about a division with a lot of programs that are mired in some sort of negativity this offseason. Northwestern, Minnesota, and yeah. Iowa. Woof, not yeah. ideal. Uh, Bill Connolly is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Bill, earlier today we were going through uh, one of the things that makes me excited about this college football season nationally is all of the returning quarterbacks that we have, like high-level, legitimate, quality starting quarterbacks. You look at this from a numerical stance in a way that I can't and don't. Is this unique in terms of how many high-level quarterbacks that we have coming back, or does it just feel that way on the outside looking in? Well, I think what's interesting about this, I mean, yeah, we always have quarterbacks coming back, but it's a really interesting mix of teams that are good with great quarterbacks and then teams that are programs that are typically great with new quarterbacks. And so if you squint just right, that you could that could open up the title race to any number of types of outcomes, whichever of the Pac-12 teams actually plays defense and, and hmm. you know gives Caleb Williams or Bo Nix or Michael Penix Jr. a little bit more help in that regard. That could be, you know, that team could be awesome if you with just like a top 30-ish kind of defense. Um, and then, of course, Michigan, we don't really know what their ceiling is with J.J. McCarthy. He started flashing kind of a higher ceiling late, late, late in the season, uh, but otherwise was kind of relying on staying on schedule and, and just making, you know, the, the, the safe plays for the most part. But, I mean, I'll, I guess I'll, in the end, a lot of this is just determined by, you know, how does Carson Beck play at Georgia? How does Kyle McCord play or, or Devin Brown at Ohio State? How does whoever, Milrow, Bookner, whoever ends up winning the Alabama job, uh, you know, how do they play? Because we've seen plenty of times that these high-level programs just, you know, plug and play at the quarterback position, put in a new blue chipper, and he's even better than the last one. Doesn't feel like that's happening this year, at least with, Al- with Alabama and Ohio State, but the ceilings there are still higher than anybody else's. And so that's going to kind of dictate it. We're going to have a lot of fun offense to watch. There's no question about that. But I think Alabama and Ohio State at the very least would have to take a, a decent sized step backwards to really, really make things feel pretty chaotic. 
I was just going to ask you, Bill, is there somebody that is kind of sitting at the top right now when you look at the early season favorites that you could see that really just falls off the table, maybe drops out of the top 25 at the at the end of the year? Well, I don't know about top 25, although there are plenty of programs that could still be decent but go 8-4, and four, you know, at Texas or Penn State or even at LSU technically. Um, Tennessee maybe. There are a lot of programs that I think are going to be really good but we're not, we don't usually nail all those teams. Every time, every year in the AP top 10, there are like two that end up unranked. Uh, and any of the teams I just mentioned, I think, could it, might not stink by any means, but could at least go like eight and four and narrowly miss out on the top 25. Bill Connolly is our guest for just another minute or two here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Bill, last year we saw TCU go on just a miraculous run. And that's not something we expect to see every season. That's what made it so special. But if we were going to see a TCU this year, do you have a team that has some of those elements that comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, the biggest thing, the, the most common elements there are the fact that they were in the Big 12. And uh, every year there's a team in the Big 12 that comes up with just that right kind of close game formula uh, and rips off a bunch of close wins and either makes the playoff or, or, you know, two years ago, Baylor and Oklahoma State obviously both came really close to making the playoff. Um, and they were exactly the same. They won most of their close games. TCU did the same thing last year. Problem with that is it's really hard to do that twice. And, um, you know, you t- typically gravity kind of takes over. Baylor and Oklahoma State were both picked to be really good, but they just, that magic wore off. They, they went like a combined 13 and 13 last year. Um, I don't think TCU is going to do that, but it does open the door for a new Big 12 contender. I, I, ignoring Texas and Oklahoma, because, you wouldn't feel too much. There, there wouldn't be any Cinderella going on there. Right. Um, uh, you do kind of have to look at who you think is going to be the next tier in the Big 12. Do you think Kansas State, they, they were also very good in close games in conference. Uh, can they do that again? Texas Tech was 4-0 in one-score games last year. They're kind of, it really, I, 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 that, that would be such a fun story to follow, but I don't trust them at all to do that again. And so who's left? Oklahoma State, UCF maybe. It's it's really the Big 12 is always the most fun race to talk about. It might be less fun if Texas and OU get their act together this year. Uh, but, yeah, it, that's the conference that seems to produce those stories. Bill, we'll get you out of here on this. Maybe this team isn't the best team in the country, but you watch so much college football week to week that it can become at times monotonous. Who's the team that you're just excited to watch week to week this year? Maybe it's based on a player that you love, the scheme that they play, whatever it is. Who's the team that you're most excited to watch? Well, the Pac-12 quarterbacks really are kind of a story in and of themselves. Oregon is just a delight or or was increasingly a delight as Bo Nix got his footing last year. Michael Penix Jr. was a a kind of a a revelation for the second time in college after doing something similar at Indiana. Uh, So those stories are are certainly kind of jumping off the – the page right now but if you go further down i am very curious about kind of the new hierarchy so to speak in the group of five level Tulane has been two two wins and then two losses the next year but they return a lot smu is fascinating to me this year with all of their transfers on both sides of the ball and the fact that they were already good at offense to begin with troy and like the sunbelt race should be interesting i think there are a lot of really fun stories at that level um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. Like the PAC 12, I think is going to be, it thinks that the PAC 12 is dying because it's going to kind of infect every broadcast of every game. Yeah. Uh, but just the, the raw entertainment level of that conference this year is going to be amazing. Bill, we're going to be reading all of your work over at ESPN.com. We always appreciate you hopping off, uh, on the show with us. It's going to be a fun college football season. We'll be reading all of it over at ESPN.com. All the best to you. And we'll talk with you again soon, my friend.
Sounds good. Got it. That's Bill Connolly joining us here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate his time. He's a Mizzou guy, writes for ESPN.com, does really excellent work for them. If you're into numbers, if you're into betting, any of that, Bill Connolly is an absolute must-read week to week. I think what he said there at the end about what is the most intriguing storyline this year in college football, it's maybe why you're not as in on on this season as I am because of that West Coast side of things. If you're a college football fan that's willing to stay up until midnight to watch games, oh boy, are you going to have fun watching some of those late night Pac-12 games. You also hate bad defense. Yeah. And most of those teams that we're talking about with the good quarterbacks have really bad defenses attached to them. So it's like my perfect formula for enjoyable football to watch. Not my team. I don't want my team to have bad defense. But if I'm a neutral observer, I would rather watch a game with just explosive offenses and great quarterback play even if it comes with some lower-level defenses, we'll say. Yeah, and, and I find the Pac-12 to be fascinating because you know what Caleb Williams is, you know what USC is going to be, but is can Bo Nix repeat what he did at Oregon last year? Can Michael Penix repeat what he did last year? Because, as Bill said there, he's he didn't just do this at Washington, he did this at Indiana, and yep. he had Indiana as a legitimate top-25 team there for a while before he injured, I think it was his knee, if I remember correctly. So the Pac-12 race is going to be fun to watch and again i think part of the reason like you said because it's out west it just kind of goes under the radar and because the pac-12 is dying which is very unfortunate because the conference has the potential to be one of the most exciting in football this year yeah it, it should be a lot of fun to watch um if you're looking for some early season games that involve those teams that we were just discussing he mentioned texas tech as an interesting team this year oregon plays them in week two of the college football season. So September 9th, you'll have Oregon versus uh, Texas Tech, which will certainly be a lot of fun to watch. Otherwise, the, one of the problems with the Pac-12 is that you don't get a lot of their like really high-level games until after like the first month of the season or so. Um, Texas, though, he mentioned, they've got an early-season game against Alabama, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and so, that was a good game last year, and Texas probably would have won that game if Quinn Ewers doesn't get hurt. Remember, he got hurt in like the first half or in the third quarter of that game. There are some fun ones. Ole Miss versus Tulane in in week two of week one. Technically, if you consider this to be a week zero, is a fun one. It just don't don't get yourself too excited for this weekend. Navy versus Notre Dame is probably the best game that's on. San Jose State versus USC. You get to watch Caleb Williams, which is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. But otherwise, the college football slate this weekend is not ideal. One thing that I would love college football to fix is get one good game this weekend. In week zero of the college football season, make sure there's one good one. That's it. That's all we need. We don't need a bunch. Give us one really high-level game, and I think most college football fans would take that. But USC San Jose State, that's what you're offering us? 7 o'clock, Pac-12 Network, USC versus San Jose State. Hawaii Vanderbilt? How about the big one that's on the marquee network ESPN at 6 o'clock? UMass versus New Mexico State, baby. Coming up next, it is T-Bone's favorite segment of the week it's a game we like to call believe it or not here on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn look at what's happened to me i can't believe it myself you ready you gotta handle a little more of this i'm ready the problem is i'm thinking in my head i don't know if i'm a browser's part all the way Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away on a wing and a prayer. 
Yeah. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for our favorite segment of the week. It is called Believe It or Not here on 101 ESPN. Not quite the same without Alex Ferrario, but he will be in next week. I Better. will be out. Next Thursday and Friday, I'm going on a bachelor party, heading out to the Smoky Mountains. Looking It'll forward to definitely that. Definitely be better next week. If you had a bachelor party, T-Bone, Ooh. where would it be? So the chalk answer is clearly Vegas. Um, Smokies will be fun. I actually enjoyed my time in the Smokies when I went there it's a, great time, a couple man. years ago. Get a cabin. We're stopping on the way uh, in Nashville. Stopping on the way back in Knoxville. That's really good. I'm going on a bachelor trip in November to Nashville to, or no, to uh, Knoxville. Sorry, to Knoxville. Knoxville's a great time, dude. Um, I if I pick one, I would probably I would. You know what would be fun that I've where I've never been, which probably is not what you should do for your bachelor trip. I would love to go to New Orleans. Oh, that's a good spot. New Orleans would be a a good place to do it at. So I would say New Orleans is where I'd want to go. That's where Kara had her bachelorette party. She went down to New Orleans. Oh, see, now I'm kind of questioning if I should change it. No, bachelorette party there, bachelor party. Different. I mean, you can do different things. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, I, I went Memphis. Same idea as New Orleans. Grant, where would you go? So I'd want to go to an all-inclusive. Okay. Like, oh, I th- nice. I'm thinking so like Cancun, problem, something though. like that. Getting everybody to be able to afford that is tough, man. That's the tough part. Okay, so here's you my thing. You got to think about other people's financial situations. Sure. You got to try to make it relatively affordable. Oh, Grant's loaded. He like, can- Vegas is one thing. You can convince guys to spend the 200 bucks for round-trip flights to go out to Vegas because the rooms are pretty cheap. You can figure out. Everybody can spend differently while they're there. Going on an all-inclusive, you're asking for people to spend 1000 bucks minimum to go to your bachelor party. Okay, but I, so I don't really want a bachelor party or a bachelorette party, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I just want to take all the money that would go towards my wedding and do that all-inclusive thing with my wedding party. Wedding. No, I don't even care if I have a wedding. Okay. <laughs> just oh, yeah. I, don't. I, forgot, I, forgot. I don't. Yeah. That's Grant's fair. done this bo- told me this before. I forgot all about that. That's yeah. totally fair. Just go go on a trip together and then you do your thing at the courthouse or whatever. Yeah. People do that. Do you want to come? Then you can come. Totally fair. All right. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for believe it or not. Guys, believe it or not, Sonny Gray is on the Cardinals in 2024. <laughs> As they're one, I'm assuming. <laughs> um Oh man, he feels so cardinal. He does feel. <laughs> he so feels does, so cardinal. The problem though I'm having with this is Nola feels so cardinalsy too. Um, so I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, not believe it. I think he gets QO'd, which makes things more interesting. Yeah. And I think Nola gets QO'd too. I think Nola's gonna be their number one target. So I'm not gonna believe this. I think they're gonna try and get Aaron Nola, and if they get him, I don't know if they're gonna look to add Sonny Gray as well. I'll believe it. I don't I don't think they're going to be able to get Aaron Nola. I think someone else is going to spend a lot more than the Cardinals are willing to. So yeah, I think he'll fall down to the Cardinals and end up being a Cardinal. I'm not going to believe it because I'm going to hold out hope on Aaron Nola. And I think if they get Nola, they're going to be hard pressed to say we're going to give up two picks, second and a third round pick for two different guys that are on the qualifying offer. That would, that would be pretty tough. They'd basically be giving up two top 75-ish picks in that scenario, which that's a lot to give up, man, for free agent signings that you're adding to your rotation. Uh, I think they would rather go out and find somebody for that spot in their rotation via trade. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for Believe It or Not. T-Bone, what do you got? Believe it or not, both Mizzou and Illinois will finish in the top 25 this year. Ooh. I'll be an optimist. What the hell? I'll say I believe it. 
I think that the likelihood is one of them ends nope. up in the top 25, but I'll Illinois. go ahead and leave it for... It's okay if you want to say Illinois was the one you're believing in to make the top 25. I, I think there's a real chance that Mizzou ends up in the top 25. This I'm year. a little upset Bill shot down my hopes of the Big Ten West title. He got me all excited. He's like, hey, they've got high upside. And I was like, oh, Big Ten West? He went another third there. Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Um, I'm not going to believe it just because I think if one team does it, I, I, I do think it would be Illinois because the schedule is easier. And I, th- I think Mizzou's got such a tough road in the SEC. Maybe three losses can get you there. If you end up winning nine games, you maybe make the top 25. But I I see a slip-up somewhere. I don't know where yet, but I just don't trust drink. So I'm not going to believe it. I think only one, and I think it's Illinois. Did you say they would finish top 25? Both, or they would, would... both would finish top okay, 25. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to believe that. I think Mizzou will get into the top 25 after the Kansas State game because I think they'll beat Kansas State. But after that, once they get towards the end of their schedule, I don't think they'll be top 25 anymore. Grant, what do you have for us today in Believe It or Not? Yeah, so last season, the Blues started out 3-0 on the season, undefeated for a little while. They beat Columbus at home. They went out and beat Seattle in overtime on the road, and then they beat Edmonton on the road. Man, the good old days. Yeah, that was uh, when everything felt nice. Um, This season, believe it or not, the Blues will start 3-0 again. They play Dallas on the road to start, then Seattle at home, and then Arizona at home. Ooh. The Dallas one's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle will be tough, too. No, nah, it's at home. Home opener, crowd's going to be behind them. Just imagine the scenario, the uh, the vibes at Enterprise for that home opener for this team. Uh, I'm going to say believe it. Why not? They're certainly going to beat Arizona. We've never seen them struggle with that team. So 3-0, <laughs> no problem. Alex tells me that team is better this year. Uh, well... Um, I'm sure why not I'll live longer I'll believe it I'll say they can win I mean they got four days off to prepare for Arizona they lose that game we might be raising some red alarm bells already third game into the year but I'll believe it I could see where they could get by Dallas home opener get the energy with you from the crowd and then four days to prepare for Arizona I'll believe it I'm going to believe it as well because at the beginning of every NHL season it happens like clockwork the offense takes over first like 10 games yeah. it's just all offense so with Dallas, it takes a little while for goaltending to warm up, for defense to warm up, and that's their strength. So I think the Blues can win that opener, and then I think the Blues offense can carry them in the first part of the season. So, yeah, I'm going to believe it, too. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We've got this from the 314 guys on the Blues as well. Believe it or not, Jordan Bennington finishes his career as a Blue. How old is he going to be at the end of this contract? Would be... My question. Um, my first instinct is not. There's not a lot of goals. 30 years old going into this season. He's got four years remaining on this deal. Should be 34. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to believe it because. What if I said believe it or not, he finishes out this contract here in St. Louis? That I would probably believe. Okay. I, I think he'll finish out this contract with the Blues. Um, I, I think they. Tr- I mean, you're looking at probably what? two years before you can really call Hofer established in the NHL, then maybe it becomes a question. But as we're seeing across the NHL, you need a really good tandem uh, to win in the NHL. Now there's no longer the days of the number one just takes on the massive workload. I know Biddington did that last year. They just didn't trust Thomas Grice enough. Um, so I would believe this. I think he'll finish out that contract. But then after that, I, I don't know if he'll be back once this contract's over. It's really tough because I can see a situation where Joel Hofer plays really well 
And maybe Jordan Bennington has a stretch where he struggles a little bit, sort of like when Billy Huso was here. Um, and I could see the blues tinkering with the idea of maybe Hofer's our guy towards the end of this contract with Bennington and then trading him. I could see a situation where that happens. So I'm not going to believe that this contract plays out in St. Louis. Um, I'm going to believe it because I think if he doesn't end up working out well, he's going to be really tough to trade (laughs) at $6 million. He has a modified no trade clause the final three years of this deal. That's $6 million. That'll look a little better with the cap rising in future seasons. But trading that, Army would probably have to eat some of it. And we know Army does not like eating any of the money that is on future years for his contract. So I'm going to say he's going to finish out this contract with the Blues. I don't necessarily know if he's going to finish out his career here in St. Louis, though. Uh, guys, it was just announced. I don't know if you saw this, T-Bone. Steven Strasburg is planning to retire at the end of this season because he was not able to overcome his complications with the injuries. From 2012 to 2019, he was relatively healthy. And in those seasons, started 220 games with a 3.2 ERA. Believe it or not, T-Bone, when we look back at this decade of baseball, Steven Strasburg will be remembered as one of the most dominant pitchers of this era. Mm, That's interesting. I'll say... He's got the pedigree in terms of the playoff experience, too. Yeah. That 2019 postseason, I think, really helped his case And for he this. won NLCS MVP, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, that year. Um, I, I'm i not going to believe World it. Series MVP that year. Or That's right, yeah, World Series MVP. I don't think I'm going to believe it because I think he's always going to be remembered for injuries and not living up to his potential, which is tough to say because what you just said, how dominant he was. Yeah, he was a 2 one ERA. I just think he's always going to be remembered as a guy that couldn't stay healthy and dealt with so many injuries, so I'm not going to believe this. It is crazy how guys that go through such a remarkable run in the postseason, like there's a lot of guys that that ends up just ruining them for the rest of their career because of how dominant they were in that run for a postseason. Because it's hard, man. The the, The wear and tear that your body has to be able to maintain, it's one of the reasons why I think eventually Madison Bumgarner wore down. Because he had those three massive postseason runs early on in his career with San Francisco. And I think eventually his body was just like, I can't do this anymore. And, and look at, and he's healthy and he's been better this year by what his previous standard was. But like, look at Patrick Corbin. Yeah, Corbin was great in that run for them. Now, he wasn't like Strasburg, great, right, where he was World Series MVP caliber player. But he had a really good run for them in that playoffs in his first year in Washington. And he's just never been the same pitcher since then. And that's why, like, when you say a guy that we always look will look back on and will remember him as being dominant. I it's tough to say that because I think guys like Verlander, Scherzer, who not only have pitched great in the regular season but had a longer continued success after the fact of having some playoff success that I think those guys will be remembered more so than what Strasburg was because Strasburg's body failed him. In this stretch of times the the best ERA in Major League Baseball. Kershaw was one, and this is among pitchers that threw at least 1,000 innings. Oh, man, I forgot about Kershaw, too. DeGrom, Scherzer, Grinky, Sale, Cueto, Bumgarner, Cole, Corey Kluber, who I think doesn't get enough credit for how damn good he was for the uh, Cleveland, at the time, Indians, now Guardians, Justin Verlander, and then Steven Strasburg. He was ahead of guys like uh, Garrett Cole, Jake Arrieta, you Darvish, John Lester, um, Lance Lynn, who was obviously awesome here. Wayno, who had a 3.6 ERA in that stretch. Uh, he's he's kind of in that middle, that middle ground. If he was a, 
if instead of having a 3-2 ERA, he was closer to like a 3-0 or a 3-1, he'd be in that Grinky sale Bumgarner mix. And that's really, those are the guys that are going to be remembered moving forward as the best of this era. Yeah. And the tough part for Strasburg, too, is after the 19 run, Washington completely fell apart. And he, he and did. And he did, like too, he was, but... He but that team as a whole really fell apart. What happened to the Nationals? And like when you think of the Giants, you think of even though like it was every other year, you think of a sustained success period for sure. Not just for Bumgarner, but for the Giants. Two years later, the Nationals sell off Trey Turner, Max Scherzer. The following year, Juan Soto. Like that team's been picked apart completely, and it's been four years since they won the World it's Series. Crazy man, it's crazy how fast that can happen uh, in really all of pro sports, but especially in Major League Baseball. Coming up next. Earlier today, Jim Bowden put out a piece on the most under-the-radar, indispensable players from each team. Basically, who is this team's Brendan Donovan for playoff contenders? I want to ask T-Bone if the Cardinals have a player that projects to be that, not among their position players, but in their rotation or bullpen going into next year. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. on The Athletic earlier today, and I thought Jim Bowden had a really good piece. He was talking about the most indispensable under-the-radar player for each team. Basically, I could label this another way. Who's the glue guy? Who's the guy that we don't talk about that makes it all work for the contenders around Major League Baseball? Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. So to put some names on this particular label, T-Bone, for the Texas Rangers, he had Dane Dunning. We've talked about him a lot, asking who is the Cardinals version of Dane Dunning. They had J.P. France, the right-handed pitcher for the Houston Astros, as the guy that kind of makes it work for them. One of your favorite players in all of Major League Baseball this year is a lefty, uh, Kikuchi, for the oh, Toronto Blue Jays. Stud. You've fallen in love with him, and you've been wondering, hey, can Imanaga become, for the Cardinals, what Kikuchi is for the Toronto Blue Jays? So that's the kind of player that he's talking about here, T-Bone. I don't want to talk about this on the position player side of things for the Cardinals because they've got 15 different players that could fit that criteria. If you wanted to call it Brendan Donovan, I think he is exactly what we're talking about here. But Tommy Edmond could be that. Maybe Dylan Carlson emerges as that next year. I think Burleson could potentially be that. Maybe. There's a bunch of different names that could fit into this kind of criteria. I think for a national audience, Lars Nupar might be a guy that kind of fits into this criteria where he makes everything go as the leadoff hitter next year. What about on the pitching side? Do you think the Cardinals have anybody right now that could fit into this criteria by this time next year as a under-the-radar glue guy that makes the pitching staff work? So I've got one name that pops in mind that could just be kind of recency bias, and honestly, it still even kind of feels like a stretch when I say this. So I don't think it's anybody that you sign in free agency that becomes that guy. I don't think Matt really fits that, and I don't think Michaelis does. So I don't think anybody in your rotation. I think Thompson's maybe the guy. I think it's possibly Thompson because... One, if what we're seeing is real with the slider and the cutter and it's got some swing and miss, we've seen him play out of the bullpen before. So maybe down the the stretch down the road into like September and then you get into the playoffs, Thompson is a high leverage lefty reliever that's got some swing and miss stuff or he's a swing guy. He's a guy that can maybe, maybe you don't feel confident in what you have in your rotation. So what do you do? You start Thompson and have him pitch three innings in a playoff game. We see teams do this all the time in the playoffs. I think it even happened last year. I, I think you saw Houston kind of do that. You saw um, Philadelphia. Philadelphia didn't do it Colin as much. Colin McHugh is the guy that immediately comes yeah, to McHugh. mind for me that 
kind of fits the criteria that you're talking and, about. And I think Thompson could be kind of that guy if this is what we're seeing is real, to where he'd be a swing reliever, could be a high leverage reliever if you needed him to be because he's got some swing and miss stuff. I think he's the guy for me that kind of sticks out as, okay, if he's in, with the Cardinals next year in September and they're in a playoff push or in October playing October baseball – He's the kind of guy that kind of fits that category as like a bullpen arm for me. Love that. And the guy that I compared him to in terms of the role, not necessarily the stuff, but the role is Javier Assad, who is a pitcher for the Cubs. And every time we've seen him against the Cardinals, I think to myself, how does this guy ever allow a run? He's the most dominant pitcher I've ever seen. Javier Assad has that role of coming out and giving you three innings out of out of the bullpen. Like he comes in in the sixth inning and finishes the game for the, uh, the Chicago Cubs. Too. He's a really fun pitcher, and maybe that's the kind of role that you could see for Zach Thompson if the Cardinals really bolster that uh, that rotation going into next year. Another player that I could see fitting into this mix is JoJo Romero. In his last 10 appearances for the Cardinals, he's gone 13 innings, has a 2.7 ERA, but the underlying numbers are even better. 19 walk or 19 strikeouts, excuse me, one walk. Did you know that? In his no. last 10 appearances. Jojo Romero has 19 strikeouts to go along with one walk. He has allowed 10 hits in that stretch. He's been amazing. Opposing hitters have an OPS of below 500 against Jojo Romero. If you're looking at his fielding independent pitching, which is typically a little bit more of an indicative of what his actual pitching success should be. ERA, especially for relievers, can be a little unreliable. 0.6. Jojo Romero has been one of the most dominant relievers in Major League Baseball since July 30th. So if you want to find a guy that could fit into the mix of like a late innings bullpen arm for you that nobody saw coming at the beginning of this year, Jojo Romero might be one of those guys for you. And I like that one, too. And the thing that I that I really like about him is in his last nine outings, five of them, he's been able to go more than an inning. Now, it may just be an inning and a third. It could be an inning and two thirds. It could be two innings like you saw yesterday. But he's a guy that isn't just, okay, I can only go out there for one inning and then I am done. He's a guy that you can, if you like the matchup going into the inning or you need him to get six outs like they did yesterday, he's a guy that could go in there and he could shove and give you six outs out of your bullpen, which is a crucial part in the postseason as well. You saw the Cardinals trying to extend Ryan Helsley last year. Now, if you had a JoJo Romero, maybe Romero can take some of that relief off of Helsley before you get to him in the ninth inning. He's Tanner Hendrickson, that's Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, we're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Shine Down with special guest Papa Roach and with the BK and Ferrario Rewind with our final thoughts on what the Shohei Otani injury could mean for the Cardinals here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. If you've missed anything from today's show, check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app, your typical podcast page, or youtube.com slash 101ESPN STL. However, you listen to podcasts, we are there for you, and they are all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. In just a minute, we'll give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Shine Down with special guest. 
Papa Roach next Sunday night, September 3rd at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. But right now we want to give our final thoughts on Shohei Otani, who will not pitch again this season. He tours UCL. Uh, it sounds like surgery is likely. Tommy John, he will not pitch again in 2024 if that is indeed the case. T-Bone, this has some potential ramifications for the St. Louis Cardinals. It's not to suggest that St. Louis was going to be going after Shohei. Nobody expected that. But him not being available to pitch for anybody next year changes the landscape for the other pitchers that are available. Julio Urias might just become a Dodger for the future. Well, that takes one player off of the market. A team like San Francisco that's probably going to be interested in adding another frontline starting pitcher this offseason. Well, now Shohei is no longer in their sights. Maybe they turn their attention to a Blake Snell or an Aaron Nola. Maybe a team that is otherwise looking at the market. Maybe now they're looking to the trade market. And they are saying, we're going to get super aggressive to get one of the Marlin starters that maybe the Cardinals were going to be interested in. It shifts the landscape a lot because teams that had their sights set on Shohei Otani, if they needed a starter, and that was part of why they were attracted to him, those teams are now going to have to look elsewhere, and it's going to create more competition for the starting market that the Cardinals were previously in. Yeah, and Otani was in his own tier and now in terms of looking at free agency, and he's still going to be one of the top bats that's seeked in free agency. The top. But Nola and Snell and Urias, now they don't sit in that second tier that they have to wait out the Shohei Otani market. They are the top tier on the pitching market. And it just became more fascinating to see what happens because all those teams that were in on Otani, they were going to make him the number one focus. And that allowed at least the possibility for the Cardinals to kind of sneak in the back door and go, hey, we like you. They've put you as second fiddle. Come join us and we'll give you the money in the years you're looking for. Now that no longer exists. Dodgers will be in on the top market. San Diego will be in on Snell's market. San Francisco will be in on those markets. Everybody that is interested in pitching will all now swarm to what was originally the second tier which now just became the first with Otani going to undergo more than likely Tommy John surgery. Somebody on the text line said, dude, even if he had Tommy John surgery, he'll be available to pitch in 2024. No, he won't be. The expectation is if he has Tommy John, he will be out the entirety of next season, at least as a pitcher, because think about how this, the logistics are for Shohei. Like even if other pitchers may have been able to get back in like 10 months, think about how Shohei would have to do that. You would have to take Shohei Otani out of your lineup for like two months for him to be able to rehab and get his arm ready to go for a big league type of a game, are you going to do that? Or are you just going to have him DH next year in next offseason? He rehabs his way essentially back to being a pitcher, a starter at the major league level. That is very likely going to be the case. I mean, it's it's possible, even if not likely. We've seen Shohei pitch his final game as a starter. He might be back as a reliever at some point, but we don't know. There may be teams that say, hey, because of the injury risk, it's just not worth it for us. We would rather you be the one of the best bats in all of Major League Baseball. I, I think it's going to impact his free agency market. I, I think it will also impact other markets as well. Julio Urias, Blake Snell, Aaron Nola, maybe even Sonny Gray. Teams that were intrigued by the pitching side of things, they're now going to have to focus their attention elsewhere, which could end up impacting the Cardinals' plans this offseason. Coming up next, we'll get you to the fast lane, but right now is your chance to win a free pair of tickets to see Shinedown at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Text are number 101. That can tell us what the festival is that's going to be returning once again. It's back for round two. What is that festival? If you got the correct answer and your texture number 101, you're going to see Shinedown. For T-Bone and Grant, I'm BK. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 101 ESPN.
You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.